Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 16 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. If you haven't already, the probability that you're going to find yourself in an emergency situation that's going to require everything you are, or more than you can offer, is real. Yes, we work as a team, but not every moment can depend on that. Sometimes, it's just on you. The thought of possibilities can be overwhelming, and the reaction to it can be inaction. If I can't be all of it, then I just won't do anything and hope for the best. But there's an alternative, another road. Don't worry about what you are not. Focus on the hard gut check of what you are. Take stock, good and bad, and pick one thing to step forward into. You'll build momentum. The people around you who have achieved anything had to do this too. They are not unique, and neither are you. Don't worry about being everything today. Just focus on doing something, anything. My guest this episode is no stranger to goals, setbacks, missteps, and success. She's fostered, nurtured, and honored that voice within her that says, you need to do this. Find a way. An accomplished hockey player, an established instructor and coach, the most decorated female in the sport of fire, fit, and combat challenge, and recently named top trainer on the Dr. Oz show. She's a prime example of not letting yourself or anyone give you no for an answer. It's my pleasure to bring you Amber Bowman. Hey, Amber. Hey. How's it going? Good. So we both worked last night. Yes, we did. <laughs> were you quiet or were you at a few times? Uh, we were fairly quiet, I must admit, yeah. We had one in the middle of the night, so I'm on my second coffee and hopefully I'm not too spongy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little jittery as well. That's okay. We'll settle in. Okay, so let's start out with where you grew up and what your family structure was like. Yeah. Um, first off, thank you for having me. This is quite the honor to be sitting in this room with multiple people ahead of me, so Thank you for doing this. A few of them you know? I do. Um, a few of them have started in my life, part of the racing community, the Fire Fit Fire Combat Challenge racing community. So I definitely listen to theirs and I'm super grateful to have them in my lives and have the experience of racing alongside them. Yeah, there's a big history there, especially with Zeus. A huge history. I think that every record and PB race that I've ever been in, Zeus was my referee. Oh, fantastic. Yes. And Mandy's a pretty special person. Mandy is a very special person. We've raced against each other and alongside each other on a female relay team. I have the utmost respect for that woman. Canadian and Worlds? Canadian, yes. Against her and at Worlds together. Oh, nice. Yeah. So where you grew up? I grew up in Innisfil. I always said Barry, but it is Innisfil. Uh, I was a farm kid, so my parents' farm still is there, and my brother has taken over most of it, or we're in the transition phase. So Innisfil, Ontario. And the farm transitioned when you were younger, so you worked it early on? and When we were kids, we had livestock, a huge cattle operation, swine operation, so pigs. Uh, my brother got his first sheep herd when he was 13 wow. himself, yes. So the pig barns were behind my parents' house, and then we had our main homestead about two and a half fields away. So that's where all the cattle were. So the older kids would put on their farm clothes after school and head down to the main home farm to work with the cattle. I would come off the bus, put on my farm clothes, and head into the pig barn. I was the one that had no fear to grab the little piglets that might not have made it throughout the day and put them into a pile and go and feed with my dad and help him out as best I could. 
Was that common amongst the uh, other students in school? (laughs) Were there a lot of other farm kids there? This was not. We did live in a community that there was other farmers, but I think most of the farmers that I grew up with were mostly cash crops. So just working the fields, they didn't really have that much livestock. So um, yeah, you were definitely different amongst your peers. Once the maple leaf foods thing hit, I was about grade five. So my parents got out of the swine operation, went more cattle, and then mostly the cash crop. I rented more land within the Barry Innisfil area, still continues. We work about 3,500 acres. Wow. Yeah. So it's a fairly big operation for being in Ontario. What was school like for you? School was awesome. So we attended school in Stroud, which was a little school called Sunnybraid, still exists. There was 13 cousins, myself and my family, and then my cousins. So at our bus stop, there was uh, nine of us that got on, and then we picked up another Bowman family. Wow. There was about 13 of us. Um, Out of how many students in the school? Uh, probably about 250 to 300. Yeah. That's a pretty good ratio. It is pretty good ratio. <laughs> yeah. So almost every classroom was one of us. We were very athletic. We were heavily involved uh, in any extracurricular activities. My mom volunteered at the school as one of the lunch monitor, kind of helped out in the playground for years and and still goes three times a week now to volunteer with kids that aren't any family relation. So she does all the reading with the little kids there. Uh, Yeah, so the Bowman kids kind of ruled that school for many years. And what about siblings? Yeah, so my brother's the oldest. And then I have two sisters, uh, and then I was the youngest. And you had to play them in competitive sports? Yeah, so funny story. When I was in grade eight, we were a family that prided themselves on going to Barry Central Collegiate High School. So my father actually went there when it first opened, and then my siblings went to Central as well. So I would walk the hallways with my mom waiting for my siblings to finish their sports and, you know, know all the wings and know all the teachers and I was a little bowman that was going to go there and in my grade eight year school system for whatever reason changed the boundaries and I was forced to go to the rival school in Estale and let me tell you that was quite the impact in our house because I went from bleeding red black and white to bleeding orange and blue and me bringing home a uniform for the first sports team I was on was chaos in our house. My sisters are, one's two years older, one's four years older, and back then there was OAC still. So my oldest sister was an OAC, and then grade 11, Terry Lynn was, and then I was in grade nine. So when we played sports, I was mostly on the junior team, but sometimes I got called up in that first year to play on the senior team against them. And then rugby season hit, I played them. And very central was known for winning OFSA almost every single year. So we had uh, a huge rival in our house, but then on the field and on the court, because not only was I playing against my sisters, I was playing against all of their friends and my friends that we grew up with. And if anyone wanted to hurt anyone, they were all coming at me. (laughs) So it was, you know, loving because you love them as friends, but then put on a different jersey and... Uh, I'm pretty sure that they threw every ball at me just to come and hit me in rugby. So, yeah, there was many uh, house fights. So there was rugby, and then you mentioned the court. So what other sports were there? Yeah, so we always started with cross-country running. 
I was probably a better runner than both of them. So I uh, got away with that one. Volleyball. And then we played not so much basketball, but maybe the odd basketball. Um, but volleyball was a was a huge one. And my sisters were very good at spiking. And I was a setter. They would just pound the ball at me. Were you supported by all your family members to play sports? We were athletic farm kids, I like to say. So very financially poor growing up. So anything the school system offered, we were all over it because typically it was cheaper or free. We were allowed to play one winter sport and one summer sport. So I chose the sport of hockey. My sister was figure skating. My other sister was gymnastics. And my brother was hockey. And in the summertime, I played baseball and soccer when I was a kid. And then went into boys box lacrosse when I uh, was about 10 and was probably a better lacrosse player than I was a hockey player. So we were fully supported by our parents. But the story I like to share is my grandparents were not. They were very chauvinistic. The boys in our family, we come from a fairly big family. There's about 350 of us in the Barrie area from extended family members. And all I'll say is, the boys in our big family, small family, were allowed to pretty much do anything. And the girls were always told, you're going to grow up, you're going to get married, serve your husband, get pregnant, have kids. That's your purpose in life. Wow. And my mom uh, lived that life. And I call her Cinderella for her family. She was the oldest of four brothers. And she was told that she wasn't allowed to do anything. And the four brothers were allowed to do everything. And they played everything and had every opportunity to excel. And my mom was you know, at home, cleaning, babysitting, doing everything that you don't want to do as a kid. When she had kids, she made a purpose for all of us to play and have every opportunity to excel. When I was four or five, my boy cousin, who I was inseparable with, was able to play hockey and started, and I was not. So I practiced and practiced and practiced as much as I could throughout the winter, shooting balls, shooting pucks, breaking windows, you know, doing all that thing. Always going and watching my brother play hockey because he was allowed to play hockey, but I wasn't. So I think my parents put me in gymnastics that year and I was super high strung and hated every minute of it and created the probably worst environment for the coach because she had to control me because I just didn't want to be there and had no passion to be doing gymnastics because my heart was at the arena. After begging and pleading and had actually an older cousin who was probably about 15, 16 years older than me, had all the equipment and she wasn't allowed to play, she gave it to me. And I mean, it was like newspapers putting on shin pads, like everything was falling apart and just old stuff. And she said to him, I think my dad, you have no excuse of signing her up anymore. Like give her the opportunity. And my grandparents were against it. And I begged and pleaded and begged and pleaded. And finally the next year they signed me up and I got on the ice and was essentially just really unnatural. I don't remember it. My parents just say, but my passion for the sport, because I wanted it so badly and to keep up with my boy cousins and really just challenge myself in a different area there was no holding me back. So when my grandparents said, you can't, I said, watch me. Does that still drive you in some small way today? It totally drives me today. My parents say that I was born with it, if you believe that. I believe I was born with it, but I also was given the opportunity to excel with every resource around me getting to that next level. Did you play on co-ed teams? Were there all boy teams? How did that go? Since we were from a small town, we really just had boys minor hockey. I think that I was the only female that played against all the other small towns for many, many years. And then 
the odd other female would pop up and play against us. But I grew up playing boy sports. Uh, Hockey and lacrosse was all boys and then Amber. As I got a little bit older into high school, women's hockey started to evolve a little bit more. So there was more sports teams in Barrie to try out for, but they weren't at the level that I was at. So I opted to stay in playing with the boys until grade 10. Then I switched over to girls hockey. Did you experience any negative feedback or sexism from your team, from the other teams? Oh, yes. All the time. My guys were amazing and they're still like brothers to me. I might not talk to them as much as I used to, but if I ever see them, not a beat goes by that they are my brothers through and through. I had a few situations happen. I was one of the more talented defensemen in about grade five, grade six. And so my dad was really busy working on the farm and didn't really come to the arena that much, especially during tryouts and the time that he needed to be working the fields. So my mom was there and she lived through my sports, lived through hockey. And it was, we were kind of a pair because she never had the opportunity to to play and she could feel everything that I was experiencing. And, you know, being a parent, she probably knew that there was way more discrimination going on than I knew as a child, but didn't make me aware of it to the extent that it probably was happening. But one year, there was no doubt that I was, you know, one or two defensemen on the team should make the tryouts, sign on the dotted line, not a chance. And the coach at the time that had got the team, he always said he would never have a female play for him. And nobody believed that I would have got cut or not had the opportunity to play on the highest team. Anyway, when the final tryout came, he called me in the room. All the coaches were there, even the assistant coaches that were in the room, couldn't believe the words that came out of his mouth. And he said, unfortunately, you are one of my most talented players. However, I will not have a female play for me. So unfortunately, I'm cutting you. Wow. And I was super upset, was crying, 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 had to run through the hallway of all the next players going in to the room to go and find out if they had made the team or not, standing with their parents, you know, old school way as I'm crying and running down the hallway, which I didn't cry very often. Uh, I wasn't an emotional kid. So everybody was wondering what was going on. My mom's beside herself as well, holding it together, but was like in complete shock to the point that I had parents running out, grabbing on my hockey bag, my stick, kids are running out being like, no, like Amber's our best player. Like, how is she getting cut? And it was traumatic. It was really a big turning point in my life as an athlete my parents life as parents how do we get through this we know this isn't right but you know there's nothing you can do and at that point you don't want to play for that coach because he doesn't believe in you so that year my mom talks about that year her not sleeping having nightmares literally throughout the season and in my mind I just knew that I had so much to prove and had an amazing coach that took me on great teammates and was really a big fish in a small pond that year and expanded my game athletically but grew so much mentally that to this day I speak about it because it was a changing point that I continue to share my story of people that have setbacks and can impact other females but other males as well in in a situation that you knew wasn't right however you knew that you were going to be better and stronger from it. Mm-hmm. You just had to take a different tact and go around that and find a different direction. Correct. Yeah. yeah. You needed to kind of take a step back. After everything settled, you took a step back. Even being in grade five, you're a kid still, but you knew that that person might not have been 
right and where they were coming from you weren't too sure they obviously had a history or a past of something that they didn't agree with Um, however you're just trying to understand the whole situation and how to make yourself better and be so damn good that they can't say no to you yeah it feels so helpless because they hold the key to the gate and as a kid i think we think very linear well this is the next step and now that step has been denied so it's all over Yeah, for sure. And some of the athletes and parents that I work with now through sports, if the linear step isn't there, typically those kids are stronger and have a better outcome because they've had to work for it or they can go the opposite way and quit and walk away and give up. Mm -hmm. But we know that that's mindset and we know that that's a support system. Were you expected to keep up an academic average as long as you wanted to play sports? Since my mom was in the school system enough, she was in contact with our teachers fairly often. We were all very athletic, competitive kids, so we didn't want the person next to us to beat us academically. However, we were a busy family, right? Working a farm and playing sports and four kids and everything like that. So the amount of time and commitment we could contribute to our academics was maybe a couple hours a night versus somebody that might be at home just solely doing academics. So there was always kids that were probably smarter or had better grades because they had more time to commit to it. But on average, I will say that we were expected to be in the A range. However, I don't ever think it was an issue because we were just that competitive. What was your circle of friends like growing up? When I was younger, my circle of friends was all boys. It was my hockey team. Playground was always outside playing road hockey or soccer or broom ball or something in the field. Not that there was that much drama when you're a kid, but I never wanted to be around the girl drama, the little cliques and whose birthday party you're going to and all of that stuff. I just wanted to go and play sports and run. And my two boy cousins were my same age and we were so competitive amongst each other that throw us in a field. We always had to be on opposite teams because we'd be fighting each other. But uh, we would be wrestling. We'd be having running races, jumping races, who could score more baskets in basketball, volleyball, everything. And that was my passion. So my friend group reflected that, who was competitive and who wanted to be the best in academics, but then also surround yourself with a support group that they wanted to play alongside you because they also wanted to be a little bit better, not caught up in the nonsense that kids can get caught up in. You mentioned the words uh, bloodbath when you talked about yeah. playing against siblings and friends. So how great was it that no one held back? Yeah, we uh, often had bloodbaths for sure. We didn't hold back. We would fight each other till literally somebody got hurt. But then you were the first person to stick up for the other person if somebody else was coming in to fight them. So we played sports against each other. We played in our off time with one another. But then when we were on the same team, we were, I will say, pretty dangerous to the other opponents because now there's two of us or three of us or however many siblings or related to go against outside communities. What was your first job outside of the farm when you started to venture out? Yeah, so I was the youngest of four kids and I always wanted to work. I wanted to keep up with my siblings. And I think you get to an age that you just want to buy things. I ended up 
talking to some sales guy that my parents were buying a car from. He owned an ice cream shop at the Barry Waterfront. I said, I can work for you. And he said, I don't think you're old enough. I'm like, well, I'll use my sister's fake ID. I can, <laughs> I can work for you. And at that time, it was just an ice cream scooping at the Barry Waterfront. And I don't think that you actually had to be an age. So he, he played it off, gave me a little bit of a hard time. But I ended up being an ice cream scooper for two summers. And then I uh, wanted more. So I went into Neutralon, which is like Weed Man, and became the fertilizer girl. And that was my summer grade 10 and 11. And that was hard work. It was full rubber boots, full long pants, long sleeve shirts. But I gained a lot of strength that year. I always worked out and played sports, but I hadn't really hit the gym setting yet. And I became really strong pushing 60 pounds fully loaded in my little spreader up and down people's lawns and then going back to the truck and having to reach up to a high shelf to pull the bag off of the truck. So I became really strong in my legs, but also in my in my upper body too. So then my hockey season started to reflect the strength gains. Interesting. Yeah. I saw the benefits. I saw that I was stronger than other females because at this time I was playing female hockey. My shot started getting really hard, which was one of the struggles as a kid. I didn't know how to shoot the puck. Besides, the technology now and equipment is way better. So I was literally using a branches hockey stick, if you remember that. It was like a two by four. So you had no flex or anything. So it was all technique. So once I started to see gains made from hard work, I then aspired to go to the gym setting and started working with a trainer. And where was the local gym? How did you get connected with them? I got connected with the local gym, Mind to Muscle. Uh, I believe it's a physio place now. They might just do it. But back then it was um, a training facility for high school athletes. So I got connected there and I started training alongside university girls hockey players who at the time were playing CIS. And I was uh, on my way to trying to get a Division One scholarship. So how did the hockey progress from there? My transition to girls hockey, I went to Toronto and I played for the Toronto Arrows. It was the highest level of hockey. It was one of the most reputable hockey teams and still is. Tons of Olympians were pumped through that program. Coaching was top notch. We were called the Beatrice Arrows. Beatrice Milk sponsored us. We looked good. We played good. And it was girls from all over southern Ontario. People would drive anywhere from an hour to two and a half hours one way just to get to the arena for practices and games because everybody aspired to play on that team. So my parents drove me for two years down to York University six days a week. And did you notice any major contrast between playing as the only girl or maybe the second girl on an all-boys team to playing on all-girls teams? Yeah, my first transition year to girls hockey the game was very different. Boys hockey at the time, if you think back to the NHL, it was more bump grind, big bruiser with the odd finesse player. And the girls game was more of a finesse game. So transitioning from boys hockey where I was in body checking and played the body more than the puck to the girls game of you're allowed body contact, you're just not allowed body checking made it a little bit hard for me. Not that I got a ton of penalties because I played the body, but just different because I actually had the opportunity to take the puck and go with it and hadn't really developed the skills in the boys game 
uh, because it wasn't needed. And I can't say that many boys that I played with really had the finesse skills because we all played a different style of game. So when I went to the girls game and girls were doing toe drags and stick handling and putting it through their legs and like finesse game that like the NHL now, I had a big gap to close in those terms. And how did the scholarship opportunity come up? A scholarship was always a part of my big picture. That was the ultimate goal to try to achieve being a, a hockey player, but a high school player. I didn't really know that much about scholarships and university and opportunities playing women's hockey at a high level until I guess we had a couple well-connected hockey coaches in our community and they would sit and talk with my parents and talk about Title IX and talk about the opportunities for women to be going down into the states and playing high-level Division One, Division Three hockey. So when I switched over to girls hockey, there was a lot more chatter about it and many girls prior to me playing for the Toronto Arrows had taken opportunities on got Division One scholarships to go to the states. So when I was aware of this, you started researching and to be truthful, I don't want to date myself too much, but <laughs> the internet wasn't to what the internet is now. So you couldn't just research or Google Division One hockey. So I had to do a little bit of digging and searching and then networking and connecting with teams you played against and then girls you played with. And when you hit eligibility to be contacted in grade 11, scouts would be standing outside your dressing room once you were eliminated from your hockey tournaments or provincials. So when you started to walk out of the dressing room, typically not happy because your team had just lost and a scout grabs you, you went from being, you know, pissed off and sad to super happy because all of a sudden Ohio State's grabbing your arm and, hey, Amber, do you have a second? We want to talk to you. So I started getting recognized and contacted through tournaments, but just having played in and on the big teams is, is really how these scholarship opportunities arose. And then phone calls started coming in, letters of intention, all of those things, and then unofficial visits and then official visits. So why Ohio State over the others? I went on three official visits, so you're allowed to go on five. I, I opted to go into three because I didn't want to miss my playing weekend hockey. My games were typically on weekends, and if you took an official visit, you're always missing one or two of your actual league play. So I only took three. My team had traveled. We went to Minnesota, so we saw about six schools out in the Minnesota area, Wisconsin. And then the next year we went to Boston, so we saw Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all of the, the Boston area schools, and we played against them as high school kids as their first game of the season. I went to a few small schools because I thought being from a small town, I wanted to feel at home and know everyone in the community and after taking my official visits there, I knew that it didn't feel right. I wanted to just kind of be a number and wanted to just play hockey and go to school and everyone not know everything about me, like the lifestyle I had grown up, everyone knowing everything. So I went on a plane for the first time by myself down to Ohio State. They flew me. My parents were super nervous that they weren't going to be a part of it, but trusted it. Was there for my three-day visit, stayed with girls on the team, got wined and dined through the process, watched them play, watched them practice, went to classes with them, lived the weekend with the girls. 
Everyone was super supportive. They were a very talented team. They played in the best conference, the WCHA. My goal was to make Team Canada one day, and I wanted to push myself and be the weakest defenseman on the team that I could be as a freshman because then I knew where I needed to build in order to be the best defenseman in my final years. So after having conversation with the coaches prior to catching my flight home, they had ranked me at number seven or number eight defenseman, which would be sitting out in the stands in your first couple of years, potentially. And I was okay with that. They offered me a full scholarship. And I remember having the conversation with them because finances were really tight in my family and, and women's hockey are allowed to break up the scholarships. So you can take a full scholarship and put it into 50% or 70-30 or whatever it is. So, so various players on your team are kind of getting paid different rates. But a full scholarship at Ohio State, a Big Ten school, Division One, was a full scholarship. Some schools say that they're full scholarships, but you might have to pay for your books or your housing or that. Ohio State was not like that. They paid for everything and they continue to pay for everything. So when I told my coach that I had other interests and that I expected to be a captain one day and be one of the best defensemen and I knew my work ethic, she had no doubt and said, yeah, we're, we're offering you a full scholarship. So I came home. They gave me 24 hours to make my decision before they recruited the next person because it was all about numbers and who was up next. And I remember my parents picking me up at the airport and I was super excited. And the other visits, I hadn't been that excited. And without me even saying, my parents are like, how far is this? And we've got the old maps out of the kitchen table, figured it out. And it was about eight hours from Barry. And my parents were like, okay. And my mom's saying to my dad, do you think I could drive there by myself? Because I, I can't miss a game. And my dad's going, yeah, you could figure it out. It's really only like three highways, four highways. You can figure it out. Like, let's map this out and see if you can do it. I made a couple of phone calls to my current coaches. Angela James was my coach at the time. And Norm was my defense coach. And I called them and told them about my visit and if they had any reason for me not to go there. And they were fully supportive and were really excited for me. And I accepted to go to Ohio State. Three months later, well, it was more like 13 months later, parents driving me down to drop me off for my freshman year. And they hadn't seen the school. They hadn't met the coaches. This was my call. This was a big decision. But they were excited. And on our drive... I think my parents were grinning ear to ear because if you've ever drove to Ohio, it's all farmland. So they were ecstatic that they could live the lifestyle that we've grown up and embrace the farm life amongst the drive to go and watch their daughter play Division One hockey. Awesome. And did you know what you wanted to study academically there? I did. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, a doctor of some sort. So pre-med was really big at Ohio State. But they guide you being a student athlete that it's a lot of hours to commit to training and playing games. So they try to push you to be just a general for your first year, kind of open to every option, so, which I did. And then you had to declare your sophomore season. So sophomore year came around and still was on the medical doctor route and chose to take exercise science, which... Not too many universities, from my understanding back then, allowed their undergrads to work on cadavers. So we did because we had a lot of funding. So it was a 
quite the experience when I had a class that worked on cadavers. And that was the first time that I had ever really seen a dead body and cut it open and worked on it and broke and dissected every part of the human body down. Hmm. I guess it's one thing to think you want to get into medicine and then you have your hands in it and it's different. How did you process it? It was very different, I will say. I had another teammate in my major with me. So me and her had taken the same course at the same time, just so we had each other's support. And with our schedule, we had to be quite particular as to when we could take it. So we took it in spring. So Ohio State's a quarter school, so that when you're in season, you can take less of a academic load. But when you're out of season, you're maxed out to your academic load. So we took it in our spring season, which was a maxed out academic load. So we had 21 hours a week of school and we had this cadaver lab and Ohio gets really hot in the summer. So we go walking into this cadaver lab and there was about 14, maybe 16 groups, mini groups of four to six people in your group. So Katie was in my group with me and we were presented the cadaver we were going to be working on. And the smell of that room, I will never forget. The formaldehyde and... Yes. (laughs) And we were sweating. We're in shorts and tank tops and we're sweating and we're looking at each other like, oh my gosh, can we do this? And it was fine until they started to familiarize the body with you. So they named it. There was fingernail polish still on. So then you started associating who you were with who you were working on. And that took a lot of courage and it was a huge learning curve at that point of your life. I think for the first couple of weeks, we were both like wouldn't eat after class for many, many hours or even the rest of the night. We talked about it openly. You know, we had some setbacks for sure. Mentally, it was like, whew, I got to get over this. I haven't seen this. Being a farm kid, though, I will say that I think I was a lot farther ahead because I had seen death before and associated as it was a way of life and however you want to look at it. It's part of life. It's there's a reason there's, you know, it's the universe. It's it's whatever kind of got you through. So I, I feel like I was in a little bit better of a situation than she might have been. And then how it translates now to the job is to firefighting. We're just trying to make the situation better and be the best version we can be to help the patient and the family and everything that's surrounding. And you don't know the person, hopefully, sometimes you might, but you are able to get through it because we have the skills and training and tools to get through it. But we never had the skills or training or anything prior to working on these cadavers in university because all the med school students had already seen it and they just expected you just to walk in and grab a scalpel and get going and have fun with it. And for the rest of us, it's initial shock for sure when you're working like that. How great though that you naturally talked it out with a friend. Yeah. I mean, I'm an analyzer in life, so it is part of my personality. But looking back and knowing what we know now with peer support teams and SISM and the fire service. Looking back, it was just a natural thing, but it was huge. It was huge just to talk about it and to not be afraid to tell the other person or your group you're working with that you weren't comfortable. The smells, the touches, the looks, all of your senses, was it affecting them and how was it affecting them? And we all come from past experiences. So 
me relating and sharing my story about being a farm kid and seeing an animal passed away but with their eyes open was okay because this is the cadaver we're working on and this is what this person wanted you to learn from and many of those conversations were coming up which helped get you through it and normalized it and got you to the point of being excited to work on a cadaver and learn from it right focus on the purpose focus on the purpose jumping ahead just a bit and then we'll pop back but when you got on the job did you experience the same kind of openness of discussion or had that come around at that point in the service or did was there a, a difference there was a difference my first vsa i was on a shift change i did a lot of shift changes in my first few years because of racing and playing professional hockey in the CWHL. My first VSA, you're there for your purpose, whatever the outcome was, I can't even remember. And you get in the truck and everyone's like, you good? Yep, okay, cool. And that was it. And everyone just expected you just to be cool with it, right? They didn't know if that was my first one, my 10th one, whatever it was. So it wasn't talked about. Um, And I remember having that feeling and thinking, when I have a rookie, I'm gonna like over probably ask that they're okay because nobody asked me. Because mm-hmm. you'd experienced the contrast right. already. Yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the FAST program. Chris Carter's FAST program. I work for Chris Carter, so he is the wide receiver in the NFL. He does the NFL analyst now, TV analyst. So he owned a business in Florida, working with NFL players, Major League Baseball players, Beach Volleyball, Misty May Trainer was by far one of my favorite athletes I've ever worked with. But we worked with Larry Fitzgerald and tons of NFL guys, as well as all of the up-and-coming university, high school-aged athletes. I had applied as an intern in my last semester of being at Ohio State and got the intern position and moved to Florida for four months and worked for him. It was quite the experience to work with literally athletes I was watching on TV on the weekend And then they would come in to train Monday through Friday. And I was an intern who wasn't paid, just had some expenses covered. And here was these high-profile trainers working with basically celebrities. I learned a lot. I learned a lot that everyone has a threshold. It doesn't matter how much money they make. You can, as a trainer, push somebody beyond their limits, whether that's them passing out or throwing up or tapping out. And that didn't mean that you're a good trainer. So I learned very quickly that what meant to be a good trainer was to understand your client that you're working with. And I had Misty May. She was literally on tour playing and I was sitting in my condo watching her play. And she would come in to the facility in a brand new car, whatever it was. And I'm not very into cars, so I just took her as a person. And by session two or three that I was there, she would come in and say, I want Amber to work with me. And she would skip all the high profile trainers because they treated her differently. They treated her as she was a celebrity and they treated her that they wanted to push her to her threshold or not push her to her threshold or whatever their purpose was. And she wasn't getting better. And for me, I was an athlete and understood what it took for me and my physical body to get to the top level and be one of the top defensemen on my Ohio State hockey team after being in senior year. Starting from Amber, you're not even going to play to Amber, you're going to be on the ice all the time. 
So I understood all of that from me going through it and experiencing it. So when I was on the coaching side of it, she would come in and I would treat her no different from the 10-year-old kid that I was training to this multi-million dollar athlete. And I pushed her and challenged her and noticed imbalances that maybe other people didn't notice because I struggled with imbalances like we all do. I struggled with my mental game throughout years of right from the story of me getting cut from a hockey team to mental challenges in the weight room to working with division one coaches to other teammates and all of those things. So the story she shared with me with her partner at the time was Carrie Walsh what they went through and the pressures that they had seen and I could relate to her and I treated her no different but then also expected her and set goals and intentions for that training session or that week or that month that she was going to achieve in the weight room to then correlate to on the court and I think that looking back he just sort of like cool that's cool I work with her awesome and kind of moved on and never really got caught up in it and I look back now and I smile as I talk about it because she saw potential in me to push her to where she needed to go to her next step to win her next gold medal in the Olympics. And I was a part of that. You both grew because of the experience. Right. So you mentioned that athleticism and athletic ability is a great equalizer. Do you find that with the job too, that the people you go and see, regardless of socioeconomic background and whatever category you want to put people in? moment that you're there it's a great equalizer too did that draw you to the job yeah it drew me to the job I I totally believe in physical movement daily mental practices as well as spiritual I'm I'm working more on my spiritual side source flow whatever however you want to say it but I believe being an athlete or thinking like an athlete the athletic mindset 100% correlates to the job and for those people that might not have played at a high level, but still understand the concepts, I really try to impact and empower them to grow in a athletic state, physically, mentally, spiritually, because those are typically, in my opinion, the most successful people all around in the fire service. Correcting the imbalances. Correcting the imbalances. How did you uh, get involved with the Canadian Forces? So after I left Chris Carter's FAST program, um, I loved the job and I loved training the athletes. I just didn't love living in Florida and away from my family. I came home and was tossing around a few ideas. I wasn't totally set on being a doctor anymore. I still had the intention of wanting to make the Olympic team, Team Canada, for hockey. So I knew I needed to be within the Toronto area to play at the highest level of women's hockey. So I wasn't giving up the dream yet. And I needed a job or a career locally that was going to support my livelihood. So policing came through. I actually applied to Teachers College in New Zealand and got in and thought that I would have went overseas and got my teaching degree. Coaching was still there and training. So just kind of scrolling through jobs one day, Canadian Forces Base Borden had posted a fitness and sports instructor position and just reading through the credentials, what you needed and what the job description entailed. It was 100% my perfect ideal dream job. So I applied, went to the interview, did a working interview. So they made you do all the physical stuff that the military members did, as well as some mental tests and made sure that you're the right fit to work with the soldiers. 
and ended up receiving the job and getting the job and starting. The first few months, I thought I hit the jackpot. It was amazing. I always knew that the Canadian forces existed just from living in the Barry area, but I didn't really know what it meant to be a military member. Everyone was up early and running and working out and lifting weights and getting everything done. And then they would go and train and learn and be on courses throughout the day and just better themselves. And at night, they would be all together going out for dinners and beers and socializing and, you know, really talking about the successes and the setbacks and the failures and the learning and all of that throughout the day. And I was surrounded by that and heard them, let alone sweating alongside them every day. So everything I prescribed as a fitness instructor, I had to do with them. So if I said you need to do 100 push-ups, I was on the deck with them doing 100 push-ups. Mm. We were running, put 60 pounds on your back, do a rucksack march, and you were going 10K out. You were uh, swimming in the pool, doing pool classes. You were doing obstacle courses. Like every single hour, I was on the job eight hours a day. I was literally physically doing something or mentally engaging in some learning capacity. So it was amazing. I learned a lot. But once again, I was this female instructor surrounded by 99% male recruits or units that I was working with. So you were constantly proving yourself. Maybe more fire service members that fancy themselves as quote unquote instructors should Take a few notes from that last piece about walking the talk. Walking the talk is very important, I, I will say. If I've learned anything in my training and sports background, if you want somebody to do it, you better be willing to show them physically and not just talk it through. You might not be the best at it, but as long as you're willing to try, then you do gain a lot more respect. What was your first exposure to the fire service? In the Canadian Forces, as a fitness instructor, I became recognized as an elite instructor fairly quickly. So there was about six of us out of 22 that were recognized as an elite instructor. One of the units that I worked with was the firefighters. So I worked with the JTF and the SARTEX and the technical operations within the service as well, but the firefighters was one of them. So they had to do their annual fitness test, which was called the Tentas circuit. So fully in gear, on air, pulling hose, putting up ladders, climbing ladders, dragging Rescue Randy, carrying AutoX tools, distances, putting them on shelves, forcible entry. So 10 tasks circuit done in an eight minute period. It didn't matter if you were male, female, young, old, chief, rookie. There was no difference in the standard of the test. The test was difficult, but it wasn't impossible. It was very achievable if you were in shape and ready and fit for your job. Everybody is at a different level within stages of their career. So if you're younger, you're a rookie, you're riding the back of the truck, you typically are only worried about riding the back of the truck. But if you're a chief, you're sitting at a desk more often, so you have to find time to fit in your daily workouts. So one day I had all of the chiefs and deputies and sergeants so no rookies or anyone, no QL3 or QL5 students is what it was called, were in on the bay floor. And myself and another elite fitness instructor was there to do their annual testing. As we were going through all of their chiefs that day and everyone was passing and going through and having fun, the chief was one of the youngest ones, actually, I will mention. 
And he was the most fun. He totally was fit and was embracing embracing the suck, I like to say, because it's not fun. It's nerve wracking. There's promotions on the line. Their promotions were based off of their annual fitness test as well. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So one of the sergeants, who is one of the instructors, to my knowledge, he was the loudest guy in the room. You know, he was the guy that was making all the jokes and the sexist jokes and the racist jokes and some things that it's the fire service you're allowed to say or not say. This is just my opinion or what I saw from not knowing the fire service at the time. So it was the military fire service. And when his turn came, everyone got pretty quiet and was really into his test. So I was administering it at this time. So walking him through and telling him what the next task was, telling him his time as he was going. In between every task, they had a recovery walk. So they had to walk 100 feet, essentially. So telling him where he needed to go, because it can get a little bit confusing when you're under fatigue. And as he was about 70% done the test, he was like bent over, huffing and puffing, out-breathing his mask. He wasn't the most in-shape individual, a little bit older, was actually trying to take off his mask, which would have failed him at that moment and the chief and deputy had convinced him to keep going and he continued but kept stopping and as I'm watching the clock I'm like he's not going to make this time and he finishes all the tasks and he goes off of there and we're doing blood pressures and O2 stats and making sure that he's okay before we can go through the next testing following our medical policy long story but he ends up not being successful and as I'm handing out all the papers after signing it because that goes in their file and gets them their promotion or they're able to be military fit for duty. He sees that he's over the time and is unsuccessful and loses it on the bay floor in front of, there's about eight of them and two of us. And I'm the only female in there and he is losing it on me. Every swear word in the book, how I wrecked his family life of his promotion how I'm a disgrace. I don't even know what firefighting is. I have no idea what it's like to go through it. And why don't I effing go through it? Wow. And I stood there as a 24-year-old instructor, 23, telling a 51-year-old man that this is my job as well. I am not passing or failing him. This is his test. I just proctored it, administered it. And I'm really sorry, but unfortunately, his promotion of he was telling me he was losing $10,000 for his promotion. His promotion was based off of him and his year or years building up to this part. And the chief looked at me with a smile on his face and he agreed with me and he backed me up. Everyone else in the room knew that, unfortunately, the elephant in the room was him. And he challenged me and said, why don't you try the test? And I was pretty fit at the time, working out literally eight hours a day and then playing professional hockey at night. And I smiled right back and said, sure, I will. Good. Not knowing that I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea even how to put the gear on, go on air, nothing. So the chief was smart and said, you know what, let's take a break. But Amber, are you willing to come back and try this in a couple of hours? And funny enough, when my coordinator, so my head boss went away on vacation, we got seconded or somebody would get seconded into being the head coordinator for the week. And I ended up getting seconded. So she believed in me to take her job and deal with any problems, scheduling, 
and being in charge of literally 22 instructors. So I'm 23 years old and the head coordinator for a two-week period when she was on family vacation and in charge of every single unit. And let me tell you, there's a lot of problems that always happen with just day-to-day operations. So as I'm standing there, he comes back at me, the sergeant, and says, I'm filing a grievance, which it was not called a grievance, but I'm filing a complaint to your head coordinator. Who is it? (laughs) And I stood there fairly strong and confident, probably nervously shaking inside, but tried to hold physically on the outside together and smiled and said, it's me. And he said, how does a 23-year-old female be in charge of everyone? But behind it all, my boss knew that I was the best person for the job when she was away. I was the most confident, the most educated. I was on courses all the time. Even at a young age, held the characteristics that needed to be held to keep the place running and held to a professional standard. So when I said that, the chief was then more interested in me coming and trying this test that he set up the time and I agreed and went back. And two hours later, literally full gear, everything was super big, bulky, sloppy. My boots were probably size 10. I wear like a size six boot and went through the test. And I was successful and beat it by like two and a half minutes. He was super impressed and was like, you need to seriously consider the fire service to applying to the military, going through your basic training, and then I will hire you and you will be a military firefighter. And at that point I was like, huh? what does this mean? Because I loved my job, but there was a dead end to it really quickly. I was already one position away from being the head of the head. So that's how it started. Was the guy that challenged you there to witness you beat the test? He was not. um, That's too bad. Put yourself in that situation, right? And I put myself in that situation now. The chief was very smart and he knew that that would only create problems. But I'm pretty sure he went back and told the guy that he witnessed it. One of his deputies came along as well. Hmm. So there's two chiefs watching me and then my other fitness instructor had proctored it through. And so they're all watching it. How did uh, Seneca get started? After passing my military test, the ball started rolling. And I started looking into how do I get into the fire service? So I went to a free night that Toronto Fire had for women's information session. Got some information of like you have to go to college and you have to get some certifications before you can apply. So started looking into colleges and found like Seneca and Humber and Lambton and some local ones in Ontario. 10 month program, how I get my certifications and how I get going. I applied, somebody had dropped out like two weeks before I was ready to go, money in hand, took a a leave of absence from my military job. So fortunately, I was able to get a leave of absence, six-month leave of absence, and started Seneca class two weeks later. So I was one of the last spots for whatever reason, got it, and was sitting in Seneca looking around, wondering how the heck I'm here, but here I am. And didn't know, my parents were worried that I wouldn't like it. But I needed to try it. The worst case scenario was that I didn't like it and I lost one semester of tuition. So yeah, so I was sitting in class and got all my bunker gear issued to me and we did follow the hose the first day or two, whatever it was. And as soon as I went through follow the hose, had no idea what I was doing, super green. I fell in love and I fell in love because every aspect of my life was tied into that moment. So team building, trusting, listening to your coaches and your instructors 
giving feedback and negative feedback, but really a learning opportunity because you hadn't went through it. And I didn't have any family members in the fire service or even the emergency service. I was a farm kid that was just really athletic and competitive that aspired to be something more. You were drawn to the challenge and being thrown into the unknown. Yes, for sure. I knew that it was going to be super challenging to get on the job. And once you're on the job, what does that look like and all of that stuff? But I wasn't focused on that. I was just focused on me learning and being in that moment and embracing my college experience. What was the application process to professional firefighting? Right or wrong. I was always told off the start, you're going to finish your year at Seneca and then you guys are going to start applying. You're going to write the test. Once you write multiple tests, you'll kind of get a, a better idea of how everything flows And then you'll get to an interview process and you probably won't be very good at interviews because you don't do them. And then after you do like a handful of those or however many it takes you, then, you know, you'll get a job offer and you'll go through there. So that was the mindset of how we were told right off the start how it was going to go. Me being me and having my military experience as well as my hockey experience and division one opportunity, I thought that there could have been a different way. And I think most people think that the process is, you know, I can do it faster. It's not going to take me that long. I think it's fair to say that most keen firefighters think like this, right? But it's out of our control. So after the first month of being in Seneca and learning your basic hose and dimensions and couplings and nozzles and really green basics, some of the departments that are hiring in the fall. So it was October-ish, Toronto opens up, this place called Central York, which I didn't know what that meant, but I sure know Newmarket and Aurora because that's where I originally played hockey. Central York opens up, Mississauga had an opening, and then some other ones were up and coming. So I got on one of the forums, what firehall.com, started reading and following along. And it seemed like you could just pay your money and write the test. But didn't mean you were going to get it because you had no certifications. I had got my DZ license that summer because I was interested in it and knew that was going to be one of the hardest things for me to fit in in my hockey busy winter. So I had that and I had my medical CPRC at the time and started applying and was like, I just want to get really good at writing the test. And I was criticized to no end by my classmates saying I was wasting money and all of that stuff. But, you know, it was a couple hundred bucks just to apply and get good at the test. And then when they come, I would be ready. So I wrote for Toronto and I remember the verbal aptitude part was like, sit there, listen to somebody talk for literally five minutes and then have to recall the information and all the numbers and names and everything sound the exact same. So it's like the first part is the 20 questions. I'm like, oh my goodness, picked up my pen and all I could remember was the person tapping their pen beside me, the other person on the other side sitting in a study hall of 5,000 people literally writing this test, New York University, this other person sneezing and coughing. So like my whole focus was not on anything that the proctor had said, guessed everything and was like, oh, that wasn't a rude awakening. This is going to be so challenging to pass these tests, let alone get to an interview to then get hired. Oh, this is hard. Went back, told my classmates, oh my God, this is my experience. And everyone was like glued to me. Oh my God, you did that? Well, I'm going to apply to the next one. Well, everything had already closed. So they had already missed all the opportunities. So then about two weeks later, Central York calls me and I'm literally on a bus to Montreal. I'm playing CWHL hockey for Brampton at the time I was drafted. 
and I'm on a bus and Central York calls me HR and says, hey, we want you to come to a right. And I'm like, unfortunately, I'm on a bus. I have to say no to the opportunity. I don't want to, but I play this hockey and I'm not even here. Like it was on a Friday and our bus left on Thursday night. So thought uh, I was quite upset that I had missed the opportunity to learn how to write another test. And a few weeks went by after that and another opportunity came by and said, we're having a makeup test writing for Central York. It's going to be on Tuesday afternoon, which was my Seneca live fire. We weren't allowed to miss anything in Seneca, at least they told us. Are you willing to go? And I remember being so nervous to go and talk to my instructor and say, I have an opportunity to go write a test, but I, I know we have live fire and I don't want to miss live fire because you want to be a part of all of that stuff. What do you think I should do? And he looked at me and he says, what is the purpose of you being here? And I said, to get a job. And he goes, so go write the test. <laughs> and I thank him to this day because I wrote the test. I got farther in the process. Part of my military job was as I was a supervisor and I would interview like 18 candidates a week. Interesting. Yeah. So my first interviews I did because I would apply all across Canada for the coordinator job because I was ready to get to that next step. And I knew my coordinator, I was seconded to her position when she was off, but I applied to Comox and every military base across Canada and was willing to move. So my interview skills went from being terrible, I'm talking terrible, to being okay and half decent. And once I understood how they would interview, and still to this day, it's an HR process that they can only ask you so many questions, and then you got to kind of sell yourself, right? And I wasn't very good at selling myself. I didn't like talking about myself. I still struggle with talking about myself. I think most people do. And once you figured out how to actually tell somebody in the interview your credentials and why and your purpose and all of that stuff, I became half decent at them. So I had this interview with Central York. I didn't know anything about firefighting. I was still super green first semester and was nervous that they were going to ask me fire-related questions. They didn't ask me anything in depth. And thankfully, I walked out of that interview and was like, I rocked it. And I rocked it not to say like, oh, I crushed that interview. I rocked it because that was me. Everything I said was totally me. And if they liked me, they liked me. If they didn't, they didn't. But at least it was my true, honest Amber on the table. And I left it out there. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, that was a really good experience because my background had prepared me for that moment. But I I didn't know. I thought, no way. Like, no one's going to pick up a kid that has no idea about firefighting. And all these other candidates, literally, their dad's a, a captain or their grandfather's a chief. And I went back to that instructor and he asked me, and I, I wanted it to be super hush-hush because my instructors, my Seneca techs, were actually against me, but they had already graduated, they had all their credentials, then they were in the process, right? And I knew that they were all applying to Central York and Toronto's and Mississauga's because they were talking about it. So I was super quiet about the process because I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get through this? And this instructor came and pulled me aside one day and he knew I played hockey and he must have saw potential and believed in me. And he pulled me aside and he said, how did your interview go? And I told him the honest opinion. I said, I was ready for it from what they asked me. They didn't ask me anything fire related because I don't really know anything other than what I'm learning here, but I think I did well. And he smiled at me and he says, this was his opinion from his experience, but he said, when Toronto and Century Art come up, come and talk to me again and I'll tell you the difference between going to a big department and a small department. And I was like, what is he talking about? Like, I'm not going to get called. The process went on for however many months, like it normally does. And I got to the very final component, which was our York test, our physical test. 
And I had no doubt in my mind that I wouldn't pass it. I mean, I was ready to have a bloodbath in New York <laughs> to get that job and passed it and got the job and started recruit class literally at the start of second semester. So I continued in recruit class till about 5 p.m. for 14 weeks and then drove back down to Toronto to complete Seneca. Wow. And did night school because having that certification and finishing my schooling was very important to me. Awesome. Mm -hmm. What was your rookie experience like? My rookie experience was awesome. Recruit class was a blast. I mean, we were called the dog's breakfast just because we came from all walks of life, all different ages. First females hired in Central York in 2011. There was four of us in our class. It was a new opportunity for the department, but for all of us as well. There was seven or eight of us out of 22 that did not have full certifications from schooling. Part of our recruit classes, we had to write for our components exams and pass in order to maintain our job. So they had put a new truck on the road. It was a big class of 22, a couple of retiree positions in there as well. So we had to write and challenge component exams through Central York and then proctored. So that was part of it. So that was kind of cool because... We had tons of experience from volunteers and some guys that had done many other things in their lives, but yet they gave opportunity to a lot of people that were green. That then translated to starting as a rookie. I'm super grateful and thankful for the first two captains. We did six months and six months to have our sign-offs done by them that I was given, and my crews were great. I think everyone at the start was a little bit hesitant to have a new dynamic on their crew, right? And in their halls and how is this going to look like and all of that. And to me personally, I never thought anything different because of me playing boys hockey and playing all male sports really growing up. So to me, it was just another day. And to them, yeah, I'm not too sure how they all felt, but I just like society, we all have different opinions and you have your great people that will go to bat for you right off the bat. And then you have some people that give you challenges and hard times along the way. So there was a few situations that were a little bit tougher than others. But I think once the department understood what you were capable of and you were just part of the numbers and when that mask went on and your gear is on, fire's not discriminating. It doesn't know who you are, how old you are, what race you are, what religion you are. It doesn't know anything. Can you do the job or can you not? When you fight those initial fires or big calls team pulls together family pulls together training kicks in and you are as strong as your weakest link in all areas so yes I was green but maybe some of the other things that I could bring to the table they embraced and that's why I say I'm super thankful and grateful because they used me to my abilities and I was an open book willing to learn every single thing that they were willing to tell me to the point that I was probably super annoying and still am. I'm a sponge and want more and always ask more. I'm writing for my acting captain this year and I'm always asking my acting captain and captain why they do things. And not always are they the most responsive because they, some people take it as a challenge as I'm challenging them. And by no means am I challenging them. I just want to know where their history is and why they, they've chosen this because when I'm in that seat, I want to have some resources and some tools in my toolbox that I'm able to make the calls that I'm going to make because you are the final decision. And do you find when you understand concepts that the skills just follow? Yes. 
I think that being a more analytical person and analyzing and breaking down concepts back to training days, I need you to do a jump squat, but what does that actually look like? And what does that translate into your sport? When you can break down the concept of the tactic of firefighting, then the skills come. And if they're not there, then we can break that down in a training situation to make that skill stronger for that individual. Mm. Were there any skills that you found came more naturally to you that you were drawn to? The skills that came more natural to me are definitely medical because of working on some of the cadavers in university and having a medical background more going pre-med. Surprisingly, being a farm kid, you would think that I would have a lot of tool and small motors experience. Maybe it was just because I was the youngest kid and I was just relied on my brother or the older siblings to, hey, you do it and just give it to me and let me play with it. So I actually struggled a little bit in recruit class with some of the smaller motors things, chainsaws and pumps. Not that I struggled, I just wasn't aware. So we had amazing seconded training officers and then one main, they were phenomenal. Super thankful for them to have stepped up to those positions, which has inspired me to step up one day to be a training officer at some point in my career. But the one training officer would always stay every night and say, anyone need any help on anything? You know, the rest of our recruit class would go out for dinner, have beers and socialize. And there was a handful of us that would stay back and break down the weaknesses that we needed to. So I stayed back many, many nights and worked on anything, chainsaw, any small motors, really auto X tools. He would have stayed there all night because he was so passionate about that. And he never wanted you to leave that training ground having any doubt. I totally thank him for making my weaknesses a little bit stronger. I won't say they're the strongest, but they're still a heck of a lot better than they were. I continually plug away at those and break it down and Google a lot of parts and really lean on the guys and girls on my shift that are passionate and are very good at working with some of the tools that I might might not be as passionate about, but are part of the job. What were you exposed to during your training that you found translated well directly to the job? And are there any things that you could have done without? Because we were such a big recruit class, I think there was a lot of downtime because the training officers got a little bit overwhelmed too with having so many walks of life. So we had to go back and do a lot of basic things, which I think you could have skipped over because of people's backgrounds and spent more time, which I now understand as well is it's a lot of money to spend more time on live fire situations on auto X and the tools. Obviously cars are not always readily available there for us, but more tool time and concepts of actually practically moving and physically being in situations that are going to help you versus the PowerPoints and things that they're check marks and boxes and they need to be done. But I think every firefighter is typically an A-type personality that wants to be hands-on. Funny you mentioned that at our NVC last night, no one was severely injured, but the one car was T-boned pretty bad. And we were all talking about how it would just be a great opportunity in these situations to spend 10 minutes to pull the tools and actually cut it as if people were inside it. Here's an actual car accident. This is what we deal with instead of smashing up cars and trying to make it look like they are. But I guess that's kind of frowned upon. I've actually had a captain do that and allow us to, and the cars are off to the side and pulled off tools and did it. I won't say it wasn't frowned upon, 
but under his judgment, he took a call and turned it into a training evolution. And with new cars and every new components that are going on it, every car is changing all the time. So where are we going to get stuck when we actually have to cut or spread? And what does this look like underneath this hunk of metal? And yes, we have apps and Google and things to see where danger points are and airbags are, but what is it physically? What does it look like? So he allowed us to do it. There might be a couple of people that weren't happy because we took up a little bit more time, but in the end, if it's their car in a month from now or a year from now, and we know what we're doing a little bit more, they're going to be more thankful. And it was in the middle of the night, which how often do you do auto X at night? There's debris everywhere. It's exactly what you would deal with. Yeah, that would have been super cool. Have you taken any outside training? Yeah, so I've taken the Nozzle Forward course with Aaron Fields. I believe he was on your podcast, which was a lot of hands-on knowledge experience. But then he backs it up with philosophies and concepts that go really far in depth. I've been to a few conferences, the FSWO conference, which is all hot classes and hot topics as well. Uh, I was fortunately had the opportunity to be an instructor a couple of years ago for fitness as well and apply my theories and practical information to women in the fire service. There was a few males in my class as well, but the way I break it down is we're built different. So I'm not 215 pounds or 180 pound male. I weigh 160 pounds. I'm five foot eight and I need to functionally move a little bit different. And so do all these other women. We can't quote unquote manhandle some of the tools and things. And there's lots of guys that I work with that come back to me because they age or get injuries and now they can't manhandle the tools that they used to. So getting back to the brute force hockey versus the techniques. Right. So I was able to share my concepts at the conference and had the opportunity of surrounding myself with other speakers and talking about issues and how we can improve the fire service. So conferences like that. I took the New York ladder course, the truckies. So when an aerial pulls up, what are they doing? What tools are they deploying? How do they carry all of their tools in one shot versus coming back and forth to the truck? So lots of cool techniques that they do in tight spaces, tight buildings, just a lot of things that got you thinking outside the box. Do you drill at work as a crew, as an individual? Yep. So we have monthly training that we need to complete as a department. And then based off of your captain, how much more above and beyond you want to go. We try to get to our fire ground once a month, at least in drill for half a day, full day, whatever that may look like. And then on the other days, we, as a crew, will break down and do some drill things. Fortunately, we have a fire hydrant right behind our current hull. So we do lots of flowing of water and pump ops in the warmer weather, which helps and is majority of the importance of our job. I'm sure you recognize either last shift or the one before that we're getting into prime Canadian firefighting weather. Yes. <laughs> it's nice not being pelted by minus 40 winds. Minus 40 winds or snow banks that you have to be bringing a shovel with you to dig out hydrants and <laughs> right, exactly. trug through snow banks. Yeah, it's a, an amazing, amazing job, but it's even better in the summertime. <laughs> yes, I agree. Did you initially feel like you had more to prove because of your gender? Do you still, and has it changed over the course of your career? 
just from my upbringing and being told that girls aren't allowed to do anything. My history has presented a little bit more of gender awareness than maybe somebody else. I don't think that I had anything to prove from just being a female. I think I had, I, as well as my classmates, had equal opportunity to prove themselves as a rookie. So it doesn't matter how old you are or your gender, your religion, once again, it's based off of your position, the time you're getting hired. So some people might look at it as a gender thing, as an age thing, whatever that may look like. But coming from a sports background and having an athletic mindset, you need to prove yourself when you're the freshman, when you're the rookie. What does that look like? How do you fit into the team? What's your role? And those roles change. Those roles change year to year, crew to crew, shift change by shift change, whatever that may look like because of who you're working with. So you need to know the strengths and weaknesses of your crew, who you're working with, your captain, and the expectations. We have this thought that you prove yourself for your first few years and then you're good, but you prove yourself each shift. You do. You prove yourself each shift. There's times that you definitely have down times and times of the year and life factors and everything that's going through our lives. Like We walk in that door every morning and you don't know what somebody's went through in the last 24 hours or their five days off. So you come in and you try to be the best version of yourself to then bring to the team, to increase the team's vibration, be as positive as you can. And we're family. We hash it out when we need to hash it out. And we stick together when we need to stick together. Every shift is very similar, yet it's very different because of having so many different personalities yet all the same A-type personalities in the same room trying to accomplish the goals that they think are the most important. And many times we're on the same page, but then many times we might not be. Mm -hmm. And to have that open communication and really challenge each other to be the best firefighter in that moment on that day. You mentioned wanting to eventually get into sort of a training officer role. What instructing have you been involved in over the years? After graduating from Seneca and working with Central York, I quickly volunteered or applied to be on the medical committee. So I became a medical SDI shift instructor right away. I then am involved in the health and wellness committee. I'm a peer fitness instructor for Central York and then have been on the committee. So there's two of us on the committee that have developed a health and wellness program. And that being said, I also was a firefighter fitness instructor preparing the first semester students for the York University fitness test, which is now FESTI and CPAT test. So they had reached out to me and brought me in through Fit by Fire as a instructor for a new class they created because there was a lot of unsuccessful candidates. And it wasn't unsuccessful because they weren't fit enough. It was unsuccessful because it was a lot of technique. So once I came in, I think I worked maybe 16 semesters now. And I've just recently stepped away because of some other things that are happening in my life. But 16 semesters, we went from a failure rate of about 20% to less than 1%. Wow. Yeah. My first year... Just a little bit of history. In Seneca, if you don't pass your first semester, you can't get to second semester. So the college has held to a really high standard amongst colleges that 
they want their people to be successful and fully prepared so that when they graduate, they're ready to get hired. And Seneca has always had a really high reputation. So when all these candidates are getting frustrated because they can't pass the fitness test, and then they reached out and brought me in, I had all the props created and I brought in my own stuff and really just programmed for the students. They were fully capable of passing the test. My first year, I only had one unsuccessful candidate, which was really just because of an injury. To not having a failure for like the first four or five years was really huge for the school. When did FireFit become an interest? (sighs) FireFit. I was at my massage therapist and a firefighter came in that races in the FireFit challenges. And just through our mutual massage therapist, he knew about my schooling and said, you think you're quite the athlete? Come try this sport. And I literally said to him, a little bit nervous, how hard can it be? (laughs) And I went out one Sunday morning with him to Richmond Hill and they just have stairs and a makeshift course. So it's not actually the course. And I went out with him and he was, he was in his late forties at the time and kicked my bum to the point that I was actually in the grass, hands and knees throwing up was like, what is this? And I was pretty fit at the time. I was playing professional hockey and had just finished my military career as on my secondment. And I will tell you, it was a rude awakening of how tough that sport is. And when was your first full run? So I got on the trucks in Central York July 1st of 2011. My sister got married that September. So I ended up missing Canadian nationals and thought that I would race the next year because when I start something, I don't like to quit it. So I thought I, I can do this and it's exciting and meeting new people and entering into the fire service, right? And making some connections. And after a few more weeks of training with him and a couple of other people, they mentioned that maybe I should go down to Myrtle Beach with them and go to Worlds. I thought like on the world stage, like, is this not like the Olympics? And they're like, yeah, 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 but you'll be okay. You'll be okay. Come on, come on, come on. And got some gear and some boots and some gloves donated to me, which once again, nothing really fit that well. And was crazy enough to say yes and went down to Myrtle Beach and raced on day one. So there's five days of time trials and then two days of finals for the world combat championships. And on day one, I signed up like everyone else did, had no idea what I was doing. Went out there, was racing a girl from Carolina that my training partners thought I would be around her time. So they're like, you're going to get lion's den. You're going to be sub three. Like, this is so good. And I hadn't really done a full course and thought, okay, whatever that means. And to be truthfully honest, I was really new to wearing the SCBA and was really green still on the job. I didn't want her to go ahead of me at any point of the race. Well, her stairs and her rope pole was a lot stronger than mine. So my tower should have been way behind. So I put out a hundred percent effort on the front half. And when the back half came around, I was pretty fatigued by this point. You can see in my body movements, I was started to slouch over and really gasping for air. Well, I never really understood at that point what a bypass was. So never cracked my bypass. By the time I got three quarters way with Rescue Randy, which the dummy dragon was one of my strongest suits even back then. So I was probably around 10 feet from the finish line and I just lost grip and could not keep them up. My biceps were exhausted. I mean, I was seeing stars and I didn't quite fall, but I had dropped him and she ended up crossing the line. I picked him back up and dragged him and ran a 301. So I just missed Lion's Den, but I ended up spending five hours 
not exaggerating, in the back of the ambulance, throwing up on IVs, on oxygen, because my SpO2 was so low, they thought I was seriously going to crash hard. And my mom had came to all my sporting events growing up, and she was there with me, and she's panicking, and never does she ever panic. Like, we would break a limb and literally pull ourselves off of the field or off of the ice. And at that point, I looked at her and said, I'm going to die. Like, I am going to die. And she literally believed it. Everyone else is consoling her being, it's okay, it's okay. It happens all the time to a rookie. It's fine. And we went out for dinner that night with my training partners and, and myself. And I looked them straight in the eye, swore at them a bunch, and told them they were effing crazy for doing this sport and that I was never putting on the gear again and I was done. Two days later, changed my mind. They convinced me to re-race. I re-raced. I raced a guy who was way faster than me, so it took the focus off of who I was racing and ended up having the fastest time going into final day and ended up winning as a rookie on the world stage my very first year. Wow. Mm -hmm. So what was progression over the next couple of years? Yeah, so that set the bar. I didn't think I would have won. I didn't really know what the sport was or what the competition was like. Because I was so new, no one really had me on their radar. So the pressure was on a lot of other people. And at that time, I knew what pressure was from all my sports and stuff, but I hadn't really done an individual sport since high school. Everything was always team-oriented. So when I showed up to FireFit Canadians the next year, you know, a lot of people had known that I had won and there seemed to be a lot of hype. I was by myself. I had no team. Uh, just had the training partners and some of the people I had met at Worlds. And I will tell you that I felt the pressure. I not only put the pressure on myself... But I felt it from other departments. Who's this rookie? My department, there was a few people that were super proud of it. Some other people might not have been. So I was hearing comments quite often from all areas. And I did a lot of training on my own. I didn't have a tower. I didn't have any tools or anything to train with. So I went off of my training knowledge and tried to develop a program that I thought would have been the best. So I used the regional events as training days because I could get on the tower and couldn't race the next days. And still, almost all the way till the end, I never raced on a Sunday because I didn't have a team, a relay team, and I didn't have a tandem partner because they had to be from your department. And no one wanted to do it from Central York. So I'd only ever race individuals and only get short time on the tower to train. I think looking back, you get most of your experience on your relay days and your tandem days. So I always encourage everyone to try to get partners and stuff. So when I would go to Worlds, I would get so much faster because I would be on the tower for five days and then my two final races and I can race in all categories. So four categories at Worlds. So through the years after that, I ended up winning Canadians for the next seven years. Worlds as well. I, I won seven times, I think. Now, uh, one year, I suffered a really bad concussion in 2015, so another American girl beat my time in the final race, but I never raced her, so who knows what that race would have looked like, but my time was beat. Talk to me about Ottawa and breaking two minutes and having a call back. Oh, 
Ottawa. My first year in Canadians in Bay Como in 2012, I ended up pushing as hard as I possibly could, crossed the finish line at 2.01. And at that point, no female in Canada had ever broken the race. I think there was a few that were under 2.10 and were very, you know, 10 seconds, but they were close. So that was a goal that I really wanted to achieve was to break two minutes. And every year, final race would come. I was in peak form, ready to break this two-minute record. And it would pour rain or something would break and you would just have to go through the race with it broken or something would happen that I just would always be 201 or 203. I've seen a lot of 201s throughout the years. The year we went to Ottawa, so in 2014, I believe, I was ready to do it. And one of my rivals was Carla Penman, who ended up and still is one of my best friends. I love that girl to death. She taught me a lot. And... Me and her would train together, I'll say, at Worlds, but she lives in Vancouver and I live in Ontario. We'd partner up when we got to Worlds, so we we got a race together, but then Canadians and individuals, we raced against each other. And we were typically, for many years, the final feature race for the girls. So in Ottawa, she told me that the one day she wasn't going to race in her time trial and just take her by and she was going to videotape me. And I told her, this is the day I'm going sub two. I strategized my race for sure. And a lot of times in regionals or in time trials, I don't always go 110% because I'm saving it for the final race. And this day I was putting it all out there to break the two minutes to then enter into the finals to have a little less pressure on myself because I just really wanted to break that goal. And as I was racing through, I was on pace and I was on pace by quite a bit. Anyway, long story, I got to the end and it was two feet away from finishing. I was at like 156. There was a little bit of like a divot or something at the end. I always run through my race course prior to even putting the gear on. So I knew it was there, but I thought I had already missed it. Anyway, I kind of like heel, toe picked, whatever, and kind of fell with the dummy. Super fatigued as well. Don't forget that part. And as I fell with the dummy, I pulled him on me, but I guess I didn't pull far enough. So everyone's cheering that I broke two minutes and the time stopped. It was under two minutes. And then the main ref says, no, the dummy's feet didn't cross. And at that point, I knew that the dummy's feet had to cross, but it was always kind of a gray area with a lot of competitors, I will say. And they didn't give it to me. They said, no way. And... I raced a few days later, pouring rain, didn't break my two minutes. And the thing that hung over me for literally three, four years. And so I never broke two minutes uh, until 2015. Wow. And all that time leading up all those races, at some point you could have said, you know what, screw it. Oh, yeah. Because a lot goes into each season. Oh, yeah. You train like it's your full-time job. You are an Olympic level athlete. You're sleeping, eating, nutrition's bang on your mental game. You are training so damn hard to be the best. And I was winning at the time. So that always keeps you involved in the sport, I believe. Um, But I really had that goal, that personal goal that I just wanted to break that two minutes. And if somebody else had broken it before me, then so be it. But it was just my goal that I needed to break. So you touched briefly on it there, but let's talk about your 2015 knockout season. 2015 was a knockout season. I ended up flying to Vancouver to do a mini training camp, just gym sessions with Carla and a couple of the Delta Vancouver firefighters out there. It was February. We were just working out, training hard, catching up with each other, you know, kind of away from the course, which was fun, but yet doing some in-gym course stuff. 
I felt like I was a rock star at that point. I knew that the season was coming. This was the season I was going to break two minutes and I was going to break it in a regional event. I, I wanted to train so hard that it didn't come down to my final race. And I trained and trained and trained and was hitting like max numbers in the gym and was doing fairly cool things, I'll say, at the start of the season when one day I tend to take on a lot. I had team training and a boot camp and some individual clients and things one night. And so I was trying to get rush and get in my workout in the gym. And as I was lifting and squatting, I had about 85 pounds on the bar doing single leg squats. And as I racked it, put it on the J hooks, I had rings um, hanging like a TRX, but it was rings hanging in the inside of the cage. So I would go in and do inverted rows. And for whatever reason, my mind wasn't really present I racked my squat rack and as I racked it, I grabbed onto the rings instead of like going under my bar. I just grabbed onto my rings and I don't really know what happened, but I I guess I had pulled the rings kind of to me. So it hit the bar. And as I saw it hit the bar, I remember this, I saw it hit the bar and went, oh no. And I tensed up. And as I tensed up, the J hooks weren't like deep J hooks. They're kind of really shitty. And the bar popped off. And as it popped off, it was just at my perfect height. It hit me like just above the eyebrow. So it's like getting hit by a punch. And as it hit me, my legs started to crumble. And as my legs crumble, I don't fully let go of the rings, but I guess I let go enough. I fall to the ground and smash my head off of the pavement, the rubber. And as my back of my head hits it, I like literally look up and this bar is traveling still and smashes me right across my jaw and cheekbone and knocks me out cold. So you got a triple hit. Triple hit. I was out cold for maybe three seconds and kind of like woke up and was like oh my god what just happened as my mouth is swelling my cheek and my black eyes coming and everyone's pinning me on the ground saying stay there stay there stay there as they had ran over and lifted the bar off and one of my police buddies she's uh was pretty high-end crossfitter and she's seen me play hockey with her for years and she's going oh my gosh I don't know what to do is she paralyzed and at that moment I honestly felt I couldn't feel my legs it just felt like knives or daggers in my quads and I started wiggling my toes to be like oh my gosh can I move can I move like what the heck did I just do the systems check yeah I'm laying there everything's tingly and I start moving and I just said sit me up like please sit me up and she sat me up and as soon as I sat up I was like get me a bucket and I started throwing up and Went through the long haul and was diagnosed with a very severe concussion and couldn't function in my own house. So locked my house and moved in with my parents and lived on a mattress on their living room floor for 31 days. Wow. And 31 days of barely getting up and going to the bathroom and treatments every single day with chiropractors and physio and acupuncture. And I started to get better and started to do some heart rate training with my chiropractor who is big in OMHA hockey concussions. Started to do some heart rate training and walked to the end of the driveway to get the mail, which we live on a farm. So it's 500 feet from the road, but I would get like literally 50 feet and my heart rate would go above a hundred, like instantly within eight steps. And I would have to sit down and wait till my heart rate came below 100 and then get back up and carry on with however many feet I could get in before it went 100. Which you've never experienced anything even close to that before. Never. It was devastated. My mom would look out the window at me and be in tears because we didn't know where you would go from there. Every day I got a little bit farther and felt a little bit better and stronger. Had a couple setbacks in there. 
Was it the deepest mentally you've gone? Oh my God, the deepest, the most negative. And what's your purpose? Who's your identity? You're questioning yourself. Everything. Can't read, can't look at a screen, could barely hold a conversation. It was NHL playoffs at that time and my parents would be watching the game and I would have my big glasses on, eyes shut, listening, being like, who scored, who scored, who scored? Because that was the only thing that I could actually take part in. I wrote a huge journal about those 31 days and I was in a really dark place. Do you think it was because you identified so strongly with your athleticism? Was it your main pillar? And when that got knocked out, is that why you started questioning other things? Has that changed for you now? Do you build up other pillars to support you to balance it out in case one of them gets knocked out? Yeah, I think my identity was Amber the athlete, the firefighter, everything physical. Everything was associated with my life. The trainer, the hockey coach, the hockey player at the time. Everything was a physical goal trying to accomplish it. I knew I had mental toughness and always have and have worked on it. So I wasn't questioning that. But this mental toughness and mindset was a completely different beast. I totally focus on creating four pillars in my life, my four core values, really focusing and strengthening your weak areas so that if one does fall, the other ones are there to hold it up. Is this how slowing down served you? That slowing down created space in my life. I was 27 years old, 28 years old and head of the world. You're top of the world, right? In many areas of your life. And you have your dream job and just bought a house and you're racing around the world. And yeah, you felt like you were unstoppable. And when life sets you back, it put a perspective in my life as to what is the most important things in your life. You quickly find out who your friends are. You quickly find out that no matter love, hate, proud, not proud, whatever, your family is your family and they will be there for you at any point. We have a very close family. Um, so there was never any question with that. But my family pulled through and they would come and sit with me on my mattress and just hang out because I couldn't do anything. And friends would be there. But it put perspective in my life for things that didn't matter. It took me a while, but I started to cut out the things that didn't matter. I still have monthly check-ins, but yearly check-ins as to what is benefiting me or serving my clients or impacting others or empowering others in my life yearly and what things might not. And does it align with my goals and values and who I want to be in each situation? So yearly, I, I still do that and seem to cut out a couple of things that aren't serving serving me but really my clients and my family members so I did learn a lot from that through those dark times when it was hard to be internally motivated to be your own inspiration in a way who or what did you receive inspiration from one of the most touching things was not being able to race and I had multiple people reach out for me from the firefit community and update me on their races on the weekends, but also update me on the things that I was fighting for. So for anyone that has seen me race or that knows me as Amber on the race course, whatever their opinion is, is their opinion. But the way I portray myself or am on the race course isn't always the truth behind who I am day to day. I call myself a jelly bean. I look super hard on the outside, but I'm super soft on the inside because I care so much that when I wasn't racing that summer, 
because I was injured, a lot of the things that I had fought for, for recognition of the women on the women's side in racing, were showing through to these other competitors. So when I first started this sport, there was the pioneers of the game in Firefit, right? The Zeuses. And there was really strong women, the Toronto, the Brampton girls, all of them as well, which I totally respected. But when I got to the races, I questioned a lot of things, which I think a lot of females have in the past, but maybe I was a little bit more vocal than some of them were. The women's category would always just get kind of pushed through, in my opinion. They didn't really care about us. They would announce this is, this is the women's final race and there would be no competitors watching. Everyone would be sleeping in their tents or gone for breakfast or whatever that was because it didn't matter because there wasn't the focus on them. No big lead-up music there for the final no race. There was no lead-up music. Yeah. yeah, so you were there. You reffed. There was nothing. It was just like, yep, these are the girls. Okay, wait till the final boys. After having made connections and training at the Brampton Tower with some of the guys that had helped me out in Hamilton and Oakville and the GTA, I had some of these tough conversations with them and said, you know, why don't you stay around and watch the girls or support the girls on your team a little bit more? Even though they were supporting them, there were times that they might not have been. And I didn't have a team, so why would anyone want to come and watch me race? Not that I needed them to, but the point behind it was that the girls were just the girls and the boys were the big lead up. It's like bringing your little sister along with you. Right. So even the owners, I had conversations with them and like, you need to recognize them. And like, when you pass out trophies, you don't even say the girls category. It's just like, hurry up. Here's the guys. And it was all pictures. And so when I was injured that year, there was a couple regional events. I obviously wasn't there, but got phone calls from various departments, I'll say, and saying, Amber, they didn't even present us with a medal. There's no trophy. There was no, nothing, zero and didn't even realize. And these girls had never won before. That's a big thing for them. That's amazing. You know, they're PBing and no one's even there to, to recognize. And we know that recognition is a huge thing. They were quite upset. And that bothered me because I couldn't help. And I was injured. And even though they wanted to win, they wanted me to be there. Even from a business perspective, you're paying to be there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I had a few conversations, but Carla Penman would have probably been the favorite to win that year. And like I said, we race together, but we battle hard on individual day. And she called me and she says, are you coming to nationals? I said, Carla, I can't even get off a mattress right now. Like, no, I can't do anything. And she said to me, I might be favored to win, Bo, but I don't want to win without you being there. Oh my gosh. I knew I was making an impact, but until somebody says it, you don't really know. I ended up getting cleared from my team of doctors. And it was the last thing I asked my doctor. I said, Dr. Shannon can I race? And everyone thought I was crazy, except for her. And she looked at me and she says, Amber, if you don't race, you'll never know. You know your body best. Go and put the gear on and go and race. You have a title to break. Awesome. And she allowed me. And I went back to Central York and I think a few people thought I was crazy and questioned it. And I knew my body and I ended up driving like two hours to Hamilton to train with a really good friend of mine. And I got to the top of the tower and sat down at the top. And that's all I could do that day. And I went back every day and I got a little bit better. And eight weeks later, from the time I got cleared, I was standing on the finish line of the Canadian Firefit Nationals in the final race. 
I ended up racing Mandy from Brampton, who I told you I think the world of that girl. Yeah, she's okay. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's okay. So she probably doesn't even know that, but she's an inspiration to me. And I'm there and I'm comfortable because I'm racing her and I'm thinking, well, this is awesome. Like, hopefully I can push her to a PB and I don't know where the heck I'm going to be. And the race went on and we started and I felt good and I was on pace. My best races, this is going to sound crazy, but it's true. My best races, I kind of black out. I don't actually remember what had happened. And when I crossed the finish line, I kind of passed out. And it's happened in any of my big, big races that I have some PBs. They typically have to carry me off the race course. It's not probably the healthiest thing, but I can push myself to a blackout, non-talking level. This race was no different. I don't know if that helped or hindered my concussion. But I crossed that finish line, hit the mat, and right away I had people that might not have supported me in the past jumping on me, screaming. The video shows people throwing their hands up from all different departments, from departments that I was racing. Mandy was amazing. The whole race was something that history obviously had been broken, but to me it was overcoming a major setback that meant so much more to me than anybody probably realized. It proved that women could break the two-minute mark. And I think it took 16 years for the first male to break two minutes. Mm -hmm. And I believe that my time did it in year 25. Wow. So 10 years, essentially 10 years later, the first woman broke mm -hmm. two minutes. And now look at, there's a whole handful of them. I expect so many more to do it because they're capable of doing it 100%. It just takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and grit to get it done. And inspiration. And inspiration. But the potential amongst these women, there is so many girls out there that are way stronger than me and way faster than me. They just have to strengthen all of their pillars which is why I think I stayed in the sport a little bit longer than I thought I would have because I see potential in a lot of these girls. It's not only making the race, the fire fit, and the combat community stronger, it's making the fire service stronger because all of these men as well are coming out and improving themselves to a level that maybe in the past only the top teams ever got to. But now the midsection is that much stronger and the bottom section is that much stronger and the whole fire service is is reflected and I'm I'm proud to to say that I was a part of it and will be a part of it. I'm actually gonna do a beginner intermediate program this year. I'm gonna release it to help those people out. I have a soft spot for the people that don't have a tower because that was me for many years. And to the people that have a tower and are at the top but might just be missing one piece of the puzzle to break it. And I have no doubt that my records will be shattered and that bar will be set that much higher. I think Zeus mentioned it in his. You break it and then you take a step back and you, you smile because it's pretty awesome that when I started the sport, there might have been 10 to 20 maybe women at the Worlds. And this year, the Worlds... I don't even know how many. There's probably 50 to 100. We even did a race this year at Worlds, which was like one of the highlights of my career, super touching, of every age category. So we had a 20-year-old female, a 30-year-old, 40, a 50, and a 60-year-old female for a female relay race. Amazing. Of all different departments, all different countries. That moment 
that doesn't happen. Your history paving the way. It gives you goosebumps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every gold medal you win is awesome. And that's a personal best. But everything like that is like 10 gold medals. Mm-hmm. The intangibles. Mm-hmm. Walk me through 2017 Worlds. So I had broke the two-minute mark in Canada. And one female, uh, Julia Draper, had broken the two-minute mark in the States years ago. But no one had ever revisited, and it's been years. I won Worlds 2016 and Canadians 2017. And here comes Worlds 2017. I thought this was the end. I thought, I'm going to put it all out there and retire, walk away, and call it all good. The week was a lot of pressure, like it always is. You know, you're walking around meeting all these new competitors, old competitors. Everyone's sizing each other up. It is what it is. You're an athlete. You're competitive. You want everyone to do, have their PB and be the best version of themselves. But you feel it. There's little comments that come out. And it's not always from the other competitors because I feel like a lot of the girls are supporting each other. But some of the guys want to just ruffle some feathers. It's nerves. You want to posture and bolster yourself up a little bit. All the tension comes out. Yeah, for sure. All the hype is going on. I ended up going out and racing a rookie that I had been semi-training with and kind of sharing some tips who has major potential and will do amazing things in this sport. We ended up racing and practice is practice and regionals are regionals and time trials are time trials, but the final race is the final race. It's a different level. And I went out there and had a lot of supporters from people I trained with in the past and people I've met and a lot of good vibes going. I put it all out there and risked a lot. I sometimes play a little bit too safe. I had mentally envisioned risking a lot and having one opportunity at hitting target and hitting the Kaiser so many times and really putting it out there. And I did. And I played and believed in my process and peaked at the right time and went out there and broke two minutes. Second female to break two minutes. And the amount of conversations and hugs and connections that I made or that surfaced in that moment for the next couple of hours, for the next couple of weeks, was something that I personally, I didn't think it existed. And a lot of the competitors that are always watching but never really say anything or, I don't know, maybe they think... (laughs) Maybe they think I'm a huge dick walking out there and didn't want to say anything, but then see what goes into it and believe how many hours and they know what it takes because they're trying to do it too. And the feedback you get was something that's untouchable. Well, they only knew you on game day. Right. And that Amber on game day is way different than Amber day to day. So this ignited a passion again in you? So it ignited a passion to reflect So one of my flaws I need to work on and have been working on is you accomplish these goals, but you never take time to reflect. Afterwards, I ended up hosting a dream of mine, a retreat called Amber's Athletic Playground. I walked all of these women, business women to up and coming firefighters through an intensive 48 hour retreat. A lot of tools and exercises that I had been working on with my current business coach as well as some other coaches, and then things that I've pulled through my life, through athletics and living. There was a lot of things that I asked them to do out of their comfort zones, a lot of mental stuff, dreams and passions, and walk them through. And at the end of the retreat, my business coach said, Amber, you're going to stay there for 24 hours by yourself. 
And I was the youngest of four kids and I always have commotion and people around me and don't really sit by myself in silence very much. So I agreed to it and said I would stay there. And she told me that I needed to journal multiple times throughout the 24 hours of everything that was going through my mind. She gave me a few other exercises that I needed to do personally, no social media and sit in silence in this cottage and just reflect. So I did some self-reflection, which was super challenging because you don't always want to reflect. And every year that I had won previously, I enjoyed it for that moment or maybe that night and then forgot about it. And I was on to the next thing. I wanted the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so really since my concussion of having that kind of reflection, but that was more of like a recovery reflection, I actually sat down and reflected on all the accomplishments that I had in the last 10 years, five years, one year, whatever that was, and reflected on breaking two minutes as one of my main goals at Worlds. I was full of tears. I was full of tears for me personally. I was super emotional and passionate about what my clients had just went through or my retreat attendees had just went through for 48 hours because I saw that their lives were about to change. And I called the retreat Amber's Athletic Playground Changing Lives. And Changing Lives still exist and I still work with people. But every single one of those attendees to this date has accomplished their goal. Two of them have been hired as firefighters. Two of them have left their corporate jobs and started their own businesses and are extremely happy. So very rewarding for me to see it and to bring them through things that have impacted my life. So I reflected on winning and breaking two minutes. In my heart, I knew I wasn't done, but I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if I wanted to keep racing or if I wanted to coach or what that was. So I kind of left it open. Months went on and it was the winter and I ended up going to a Tony Robbins event. Yeah, I share this with you and little listeners because I think it's changed my life in the shape, way, and form of this quote. And he said, achievement without fulfillment is a complete failure. Hmm. And I thought all the years of my racing and my athletics and getting hired quickly and all of these things, I haven't felt fulfilled because I've helped people along the way and I've always wanted to coach and give back, but I really haven't put myself out there because I was probably living in a fear state. And I think a lot of us are afraid to take their next step in the fire service, in life, in a new business adventure, with your kids, or whatever, because of your fear of judgment, your fear of failure, your fear of whatever that might be for you. And that stuck with me. And I wrote that quote in my gym, and I did some soul searching. I was like, what am I going to do? And how do I want to do this? And am I going to be judged if I put something together in a program and what aligns with me and what are my core values? And I, I did a lot of that stuff and work with my business coach and hired another business coach and really have done a lot of professional development in the 2017 winter 2018. And I came back to the table with giving back to my racing community because that was near and dear to my heart. And I did a program called Ignite the Champ Within. And it was for the elite racers. So the person that's looking to just shave a few seconds off of their time or milliseconds so that they can achieve their goal. And I had six people go through the program. They PB'd. A couple of them had just started racing, but had PB'd in other areas of their life. 
and I was super fulfilled. And last minute in August, I called my mom and said, mom, I'm going racing. And she was excited because she missed racing. And we went to Berlin and it was on my bucket list to go over and race in a European challenge because I know my racing career is coming to the end. And so I raced in Berlin. They had started many years after Firefit and Firefighter Combat Challenge. So their racers might not be as advanced. There's damn good racers over there, don't get me wrong. But they also have a lot of new people. And so I went over and I won the female category. It's super funny that face mask didn't fit with my helmet. So I'm here, I am standing on the starting line being like, can I borrow somebody's helmet? Can I borrow somebody's helmet? So I got to wear one of those funky Euro helmets, which if that was one of my first years of racing would have totally thrown me off my game, but I just embraced it and have fun with it. It was really fun. And then the next day was amazing. I partnered with a new female for tandem. She was so nervous to race with me and it was awesome. She did it so good and we placed, she was crying and it was really, really just rewarding for me to see that and share the passion that she carried. And then the following couple of hours, we put a female relay together and I guess there's like a Euro female relay team that always race together and they're, they're very talented. They race together at Worlds and all of that. And then there's about five or six girls on the sideline. They don't have a team and I guess they never really had the opportunity to race, something along those lines. The language barrier was fairly strong, so it was hard for me to kind of understand what they're saying. But they invited me to race on their team or we put a team together, I guess. Here I am with four other females and myself, never raced before and go against the top team. My girls were so nervous. No one knew what they could do. So I'm like physically showing them the motions. Can you hit the Kaiser this way? Like, can you rope pull? Can you drag the dummy? Like, anyway, we figured out positions and we went and raced against this top European team who wins all the time and has all, you know, Instagram and they're good and they're damn good. And we raced against them and we ended up beating them. And my girls were crying. They were ecstatic. And it was a moment in my life that I was making an impact, but they did it. I just supported them. So I was coaching them essentially. Yes, I participated in did some parts of the race, but on the fly in the moment. In the yeah, in the uh-huh, <laughs> exactly. And I was so fulfilled and I was fulfilled with my Ignite the Champ Within clients and I was like, I'm not done yet. So I came back and I was training with some of the girls locally. They were all wondering if I was going to Worlds and I kept saying no, no, no. And I had some family things happen and green light kind of opened up and I booked my flight very last minute and went to the 2018 Worlds. And just like every other year, something happens. My flight got delayed. It got delayed in Chicago. I had to sleep in Chicago. A whole bunch of things against me, which just I've learned through the years to kind of push through them and raced in the female final event and was getting my butt kicked. So bad that I was like, for a split second, I'm not going to win this. And I haven't ever lost the final race ever. For a moment, I thought I'm going to lose this and I'm okay with it because that person that I'm racing has became that much stronger in all pillars. And I was kind of mentoring her and was super proud that this was happening. But then your never die attitude kicks in and puts pressure on. And I put enough pressure on, risked a lot, I will say, that race and took some penalties that I never have taken before because I was pushing and taking these risks and ended up mentally, I will say, the difference maker uh, was a lot of the mental game and ended up winning. I won. I was fulfilled. I had helped the most people. I know that it stung a lot for that individual that I raced against, but 
I will tell you that that person is going to be a rock star for many, many years. And I am done. It took a lot of hours to leave that course. It took a lot of hours to pack up my hotel and leave. But yeah, I am super excited for my next chapter to start. Hopefully be an acting captain soon. Watch all these other people evolve and be the true champion that I know that they are. Did you fear fulfillment before because you were worried that if you felt it, that the fire and the drive would go out? And now you learn how to celebrate the little wins, feel fulfillment, and know that you can still perform. That's a really good question. I maybe... Maybe I did, and I needed to mature, both in a professional manner, but as an individual. But I now celebrate not only my little wins that I'm working on, because I always used to look past them, like I said, but I celebrate other people's wins probably more than I celebrate my own, because I know how hard it is athletically, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in all areas. Guys I work with, I celebrate their wins and sometimes they probably think I'm crazy, but little tiny things are huge things in life. My heart goes out, it fills, and this jelly bean just gets bigger and bigger, I think. I'm competitive, can't lie that I'm not, but when somebody has a win or life changes, I don't know if it's getting older and more mature, it super jacks me up and I love it. Just speaking from personal experience too, I just find it common in the fire service where there's a lot of us that drive ourselves and achieve success through feeling not good enough and we never let ourselves actually get there. You know, we don't know that we can feel good enough and how much better that feels and achieve success. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I will add to that. I don't think a lot of firefighters, we'll say firefighters, but I don't think a lot of people actually know how good they are. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I think there is so much talent in the people we work with and are surrounded by that other people see your potential and other people believe in you. But sometimes you need to take a step back or have a setback and realize how damn good you are and what your true potential is. And until you recognize that, you're right. You're going to hold yourself back. Over past episodes, I think it's come up a number of times, but since we're on this now, I think it's the fact that we don't allow each other, and it's great that you do this, you allow the space for people to feel proud of themselves. A lot of us, we paint them as arrogant. I agree with you completely that being humble and sharing your success is only going to raise the vibration of that person that's trying to get to where you are or past you. I personally didn't share my successes for many years because of being afraid of being judged, being afraid of what that might look like, probably a lot to stem with my past. Now that I'm recognizing it and celebrating it and celebrating others' accomplishments honestly harder than my own, I want people to celebrate what they're doing because I learned that I probably should have been doing that a long time ago and it would have increased everybody's vibration that much more. And you can give them 20 years of that feeling that you maybe missed out on. Yeah. The younger version of Amber needed to be told that it was okay to celebrate individual accomplishments and team accomplishments and not worry about judgment. And it's okay to become the inspiration. Yeah, I don't really think I'm an inspiration, to be honest. I don't. 
I just try to be the best version of myself and empower others. You don't necessarily have to think you're an inspiration to be an inspiration. That's something that happens in someone else's mind. I can witness you and I'm inspired by you. That makes you an inspiration. So whether we believe it or not, doesn't make a difference. Well put. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> How did Fit by Fire come to be? Fit by Fire came to be because I couldn't get a sponsor to go to my second year at Worlds. I was totally strapped for money because I had just purchased a house. I was a new firefighter on the job that was making good money, but had no finances to pay for a plane ticket or a hotel room and racing fees to get to Worlds and defend my title. And one of the guys I work with said, Amber, I have a great idea. All your training experience and your certifications and your education, let's put it behind you and offer some fitness coaching, personal training, online coaching, and get you to Worlds. And I did, and people kind of heard my story locally. And there's actually a couple of guys in my department that I'll never forget. They had a card kind of with my message on it. I was new. I didn't know where I stood within the department. And they passed around a hat, essentially, and said, anyone want to donate money to Amber to get her to Worlds? Because our department's not really behind her, and let's get her there. Hundreds of dollars later, my department, out of the goodness of their heart, paid for parts of my trip to get there. And then locally, people had seen me training in the parks in my fire gear, running up hills and pulling things and would stop in their car and be like, hey, you're the girl that I saw in the newspaper. Can I come train with you? I'd be like, sure. And then they would be like, what are you training for? And I'd explain it and they would say, how much money can I give you to help me lose weight or to gain strength or to this? And I said, it's a donation. It's me to go to Worlds. And so some people paid me $5, $20, $100 and After training for so many weeks, I had enough money to get there, book my flight, booked everything, and established Fit by Fire. Was it a hurdle then to allow yourself to monetarily put value on who you are and what you have to offer? 100%. I choke on it. Yes. I've been working on this with my business coach. Money for a poor farm kid is always an issue because you think of yourself as it's hard to make money. Money doesn't come to us easily. So you have a lot of money issues. So if you work with a money consultant or a money coach, you're good at what you do. And I believe that the successes I've had are because of my knowledge and courses and people I've surrounded myself with that has built my resume essentially to the level that it's at to provide a service for people that want it. Do you worry that people would see you as less credible because you're asking for money for something? Potentially. How do you tell somebody, hey, I want you to pay so that I can go and race in something that is for me? Mm -hmm. Over the years, however, I have paid for nine other females to compete at the World Firefighter Combat Challenge. So I've turned it into a mini sponsorship. It doesn't come back to me in any way other than seeing them succeed and wearing that fit by fire patch on their helmet proudly. It's really hard to maintain the competitive level of fitness. The level of fitness that's required to do the job is very high, but the level to compete is even higher. How have you balanced that? And how was it coming back to a job-ready level of fitness versus experiencing a competition level of fitness for so long? Yeah, so competition is an extremely different level. It's an Olympic level. Throughout the buildup of it, you're fit. But when you're peaking, if you periodize properly, your peak is something that is 
your best ability you've ever been at. Like my 34-year-old self would have kicked the crap out of my Division One hockey self physically, mentally, emotionally, all of it, but physically because I train way more functionally now and at different peaks than I ever did as a hockey player because our strength coach wasn't as nothing to knock him, but he couldn't skate. So he trained us like football players. So I was big, I was bulky, I was slow, and I wasn't functional, and I hurt. My body hurt all the time because it was heavy and it was strong, but it didn't move the way it moves now. Daily training for the job in the fire service requires a lot of strength for my philosophy is anybody under the weight of 160, male, female, it's a strength job. So we have to be in the weight room or lifting weights six times a week. Anyone that's over 170, give or take, there'll be a gray area in there, but anyone that's over, it's a conditioning job. It's a metabolic conditioning job. So they're going to fatigue out and outsuck their cylinder or their bottle way faster than a smaller individual that's more functional. So the way that the sport is itself is very similar, but yet both are metabolic conditioning with a strength level that you need to get to to perform at your max speed and power. So I see lots of big competitors that everyone's like, oh my God, that guy must be the champion because his muscles are ready to pop out. Females too, really big muscles, but they can't run. And new competitors will come up to me and go, you're the champ. And I'm like, hi, um, I'm Amber. Nice to meet you. <laughs> and other people know me or standing with me smirking. And I've literally had people say, you're fat. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Because wow. I don't have the muscles that are popping out than some of the other competitors that might have. And I'm not the biggest competitor. And I'm not the strongest. But power to weight ratio and agility. and So I figured out a program it takes me 14 weeks to peak wow and nothing more than 14 weeks because, that's fast yeah well, it seems fast well I, I think you have to build your foundation for the everyday job so my foundation is always there but within 14 weeks i believe you can take yourself from having a fairly good baseline to a peaking state anything more than that i feel like people miss their peak so they peak too early or peak too late or injuries happen i've played around with it for my eight years of racing nine years of racing and found that for 95% of us, there might be a handful of us that need shorter or need longer, but 95% of my clients can reach their peak and will peak in 14 weeks. Are there any calls that stand out for you? Besides some of the traumatic calls that I won't go to, but I've had some funny calls. A structure fire last year, jumped off the truck. One of the last things I put on was my helmet. So as I jump off, all the residents are out on their street and they're obviously upset. And I throw my helmet on to go back to the first cupboard to go grab my tools. And this lady comes running up to me and literally grabs my shoulder and is pulling on my fire jacket and saying, you're a girl. You can't go in there. It's too dangerous. Women can't be doing this. And my captain is standing there and hears it. And we make eye contact and kind of smile, but are professional. And I'm thinking, what? He's not good enough? He's not worth it? You're going to sacrifice him and go in? <laughs> and he's looking at me like, what? She's one of us. 100% she's going in. And so I grabbed my tools and I said, it's okay, ma'am. We'll be right back. And I went in and we were in the house for, you know, quite a while. Come out, I'm in rehab. And doesn't she walk over? So she passes all the barriers and everything and walks over. And we're all having our drink of water and recovering. And she says, I'm just really sorry. I just associate it with, you know, my granddaughter and my niece and all. I just, I wouldn't want them running in there. But 
you look like you're a pretty strong female. And then, you know, one of the guys in my crew pipes up and says, um, if Amber can't do it, then I'm not too sure who can or something like that. And gave me a compliment, like an indirect chirping comment, which obviously feels good. And I smiled and I said, thank you very much. And I said, I was just wondering, you thought it was okay for him to go in though? Like you're going to risk him and not me and make the comment back. Like I care about him back and forth, right? The, the chatter that gets firefighter amongst firefighter. And she laughed it off and she learned, right? She learned probably that day like, oh yeah, I shouldn't categorize everybody. So you took it very well, considering especially from the past and what your grandparents told you. It's a lot of maturity from that moment to that moment to allow you to laugh it off. I like to give the public the benefit of the doubt. Really anybody, my family members make comments too, not my immediate family, but some of my distant family members will make comments to me as well, right? And you get to parties and I think every firefighter's experienced this, the feats of strength. Oh yeah, can you lift me? Can you drag me? And I think once they understand kind of what you do in your job and you're not just picking up heavy things and dragging it or else we'd all train like strongmen, then they understand, oh yeah, firefighters come in all shapes and sizes and ages and everything we've been talking about because it's all just the stereotypical calendar figure that they think that you have to look like. Do you connect with patients, victims, the public easily? How do you balance compassion and concern for them with staying task-oriented? Yeah, it's a learning curve. The more situations you're put in, the more tools you have to cope with based off of conversations you might have post-call. I will say that I am compassionate, so some situations definitely pull at your heartstrings a little bit more than maybe some others. I do bring in fate and a little bit more of belief and spiritual into it and try to make the situation as best I can, but understand that I didn't cause the situation. Believe that everyone has a purpose in life and if there's a young death or something doesn't really make sense, I think it might be a defense mechanism, but you do, I do resort back to, you know, it was meant to be this way and their purpose. And maybe this person's your angel in your life and your life or their life. And they're learning something. We're all learning from it. Right. And, um, or even a gratitude that you got the opportunity to be there to give them the best chance. Yeah. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege. And to make the family members, as comfortable as they can in a really uncomfortable situation. Anything with kids is really challenging. I had a dad go VSA, vital signs absent on one of my last calls and the kids were having a sleepover. And so there was some visiting kids at the house and then his kids and he was young, he wasn't old. And for whatever reason, something happened and we were working on him. Sent one of the other firefighters upstairs to play with the kids. So that was his role. And he was just the closest person for the job. So he went and me and my partner were working on this guy and we ended up getting him back. And my captain had uh, the, the girlfriend and we were kind of all working with paramedics and police. And it's a scary sight for a family to go through something like that, that has never went through it. And God forbid that they have to. So once he was transported to the hospital and breathing at this point and talking actually, which was quite, quite amazing, the kids came down and we had to show them like we put all the garbage away and made sure that the scene was, was nice and clean and 
comforting for them and they had mattresses because they're going to have a sleepover so they had mattresses in the living room and my crew stayed and we played with the kids and we brought them helmets our little firefighting helmets and coloring books from the truck we had a little bit of a dance party in the living room as you know the wife or the girlfriend was organizing some things with the paramedics and police officers were standing there and everyone was partaking in this dance party and making it the best situation that these kids could remember for the rest of their life as the worst night of their life. Mm. And there are moments like that, that I think that you as a firefighter or emergency service worker are super proud to be a part of because not only was a life saved potentially, but multiple lives were impacted in a positive spinoff from a really negative situation. Yeah, there's that saying about people don't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. I think what you just described was a moment where people will remember what you did and how you made them feel. I don't ever want a child to have a bad experience with a firefighter and not feel comfortable with them. We're on their team. There's lots of negatives in our jobs and we get criticized for whatever reason. But at the end of the day, we're just trying to help the community. And I think it takes a special individual to be a part of it. I think a lot of the the people on the job are really special individuals because not too many people say they, they want our job. My family chirps me all the time. It's funny. My brother He'll chirp me, but I'm like, you can't even see blood. And he like laughs and he's like, you're right. And I go, okay, I get it. And I get that you can chirp me and stuff like that. There's a lot of people that do want our jobs, 100%. And there's a lot of great candidates out there. And I'm not saying that, but I am saying that there is a lot of people that can't do our job. And until you actually get into a really not pleasant situation, you never really understand. And there's a lot of perks to our job and there is a lot from the community and outside that see it as perks, I'll say. I know in our department, we're allowed to go grocery shopping to buy healthy meals and cook together, which we totally do and are super grateful for having family dinners together and healthy family dinners and taking it serious. So you see us in the grocery store, but the amount of people that we impact in the grocery store and have conversations with and remind them to check their smoke alarms and do pub ed and show them the truck and all of those things far outweigh the negative as well as they might see us as having meals and maybe they're not allowed in their job but we are getting paid for the potential too the potential of what could happen and what we're willing to do we're not a production model no and i'm one of the first people to admit god forbid i have to ever put myself in a situation that i'm willing to give up my life but my family knows that I'm willing to give up my life for somebody else's. And if that time permits itself, I'm going. So how many people can say that? I think that's that's honorable. For right? sure. What's the Ember Academy and how did you become involved with that? Ember Academy is in the Yukon, in Whitehorse. It is an empowerment introduction to females in the fire service. I was invited to be a main instructor by James Patterson, a chief up there who was involved in racing. And we've had a few conversations and he invited me to be a main instructor. It's a week. It's very intensive. It's literally recruit class. And my recruit class in 14 weeks or in five days. Wow. So they get introduced to every single thing you would see in the fire service with the final being one big fire scenario with multiple casualties to be pulling out of a fire 
and lots of chaos going on. The exposure that the women and girls get, it was women-based, so everyone over the age of 18, to see what firefighting is actually like. Because much like myself, I didn't really know what firefighting was about. For the most part, not too many people know what it is or think that they're capable of doing it. So we've talked a lot about high-level athletic performance within the fire service. But overall, what's your take on the current state of health and wellness in the fire service? And is it better than when you started? And do you think we can improve? Yeah, health and wellness in the fire service, I I believe is the next big thing that we're going to tackle in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health. When I started, there was lots of healthy people, but we were also on a shift of 10s and 14s. And from my experience, not always did we cook together for dinners. So there was a lot more fast food eaten during the day. There's lots of stress because you're away from your family and people are eating basically just to survive. So some people are making a peanut butter sandwich over here, and then over here they're having soup. It's kind of a chaos for nutrition. Other people are really healthy, and they live day-to-day like that. So going to the 24-hour shift, our crew has cooked a healthy meal every single night together for the last three years. Lunches and breakfasts are on your own, but it seems like most people are picking healthier choices. We work out together as a crew. A lot more awareness and programs implemented from a health and wellness committee standpoint. We have peer fitness trainers being put in place. We would like to have more in our service. But definitely the awareness has been brought to a completely different level from when I started. Fit people are always going to be fit. The unhealthy population, and I say unhealthy in a loving way because they might be really physically fit. They might be athletes playing sports at night, but mentally they might not be as fit. Or mentally they might be really, really strong and focus on that, but physically they're not. So one of their pillars might be a little bit down. So just bringing awareness to the table. And balance is just a current state. It doesn't mean that you can't become balanced. Correct. It's a current state. Absolutely. And balance also means you have to have some downtimes and eat junk food and embrace and go out and and surround yourself with those things too. It's not 100% one way. It's about having your, your good, your bad, and recognizing where you need to be or want to be to have longevity and have a successful career, but a very successful retirement and a healthy retirement. Are you enjoying treating yourself a bit more now that you're not driving so hard year to year? Yeah, I've traveled a little bit more this off season, surrounded myself with friends and family that I really haven't taken the time to allow myself to because of being on a strict training schedule and budget because it's expensive to race, allowing myself to embrace those things and really putting perspective into what my future looks like or what I want my future to look like from a personal level, a career level, and a retirement level. Do you see it now as there's moments to glide? Yeah, there's definitely moments to glide. I always let myself have a little bit more leeway in the winter months, so I'll gain more weight and not be as strong and things like that because I know from my hockey experience that I need to have an off season. 
even for a few weeks or months, but I never let myself totally go and get out of balance to that far degree. But I think for a high level athlete, letting yourself go is a different state than letting yourself go when you're not healthy to begin with. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely focus more on business and building in my winter months. So I'm sitting behind a computer a lot more at a desk in more meetings and traveling a lot more in hotel rooms which is always a challenge in itself. So when I'm in flow or I'm in my business mindset, athletic mindset, and feeling the best, that's when I have everything implemented and everything is just, then I'm just coaching and free-falling, working with clients and hitting benchmarks and goals. And that's my passion, not the behind the stuff work. I don't think anyone is, but it needs to get done. What's the demographic or cross-sections of people and goals that you've been helping? I definitely have my fire community because that's what I'm surrounded with all the time. And I have firefighters from around the world, from Australia, New Zealand, Germany, uh, all throughout North America. So definitely that's a niche market of mine that I work with. And then I work with women's empowerment. So I do a lot of women's and girls sports, but individually I'm focusing on the woman who has potential and in the fire service too. The woman or the person that has potential that's looking to get to their next step but might not know how or what that might look like. So just bringing them through exercises and coaching them through where they're at to reach their next step to unleash their true potential. A lot of it I go back to physical physical movement every single day so implementing that and it's easy to get caught up in business or in kids lives or in your work that you forget about your everyday activity and I'm not talking about like the hardest workouts that you're not going to feel great after I'm talking about movement that is going to align you to set you up and mentally stimulate you to then focus on some mental things, some meditation, some quiet, some relaxation, a hobby, something outside of your job, something for you. And who reaches out to me? I'm 50-50. I'm 50% male, 50% female, 25 to 40. Yet I'm getting a lot of younger people reaching out. And if I had to tell my younger self, I would have told myself to reach out and pay and get supported at a younger age than trying just to figure it out on your own. Because I think we all go, oh, I can't afford it. We can't afford it. But yet we can go to the bar and spend $100 in one night. Yeah, where do you put your value? So where is your value? Where do you want to go? And how are you going to get there? And there's times and places that you need to spend that $100 at the bar and do things like that. But when you're doing it consistently and not putting value into your health or your job or your goals, that's when I question people. So I am getting a lot of younger people that are reaching out and are ready to take their next step. And I give them the most opportunity to reach their goals. How much should I spend on a mountain bike helmet? Yeah. Well, what's your brain worth? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sporting equipment. I get in trouble for spending some money on sporting equipment from my partner. And I often laughed. That's my health and Mm. that's my outlet and that's my meditation. And it's a new challenge. I actually just bought a mountain bike. I'm pretty jacked about try a new sport I'm super afraid. I break, 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 break all the time down hills, like the smallest little hill. But it's challenging me. And it's challenging me in many areas of my life that I know that's only going to make me stronger. Zeus actually taught me to ride back when I first got on. Oh, sweet. And I taught him to snowboard. So we've been doing those the last 20 years. Awesome. We'll get you out. Yeah. You're in a bit of a mecca right here. So yes, plenty of rides this summer. How did Dr. Oz come to be? 
I'm partnered with a supplement company called USANA because I believe in cellular nutrition to supplement our nutrition from food. And I was at the yearly conference and Dr. Oz was doing a live taping. Between commercials, he announces he's looking for America's next top trainer. And right away, I had that feeling, and I've only had it a few times in my life, right away I had that feeling, source energy, universe, whatever you want to call it, that holy shit, this is me. And this overwhelming feeling of I'm doing this. I get lots of people that are like, Amber, you need to go on American Ninja Warrior. You need to do this show. You need to do that show. I've applied to the amazing race. I've done all of that stuff and never got selected, but never had that feeling. This, I was like, this is it. This is what I love and I'm passionate about. And oh my gosh. So originally I was like, but I'm not going to be able to get chosen because I'm not American. I go back to the hotel room and I look up the rules right away and it was North American. So I was able to apply. I applied and put together a four minute video at Worlds one year on the race course. So involves some firefighting stuff, involves some farm background. It's on YouTube. You can check it out. Within a few weeks, nothing happened and kind of like forgot about it and then one night I'm chopping up vegetables or whatever in my kitchen having my music blaring and my phone rings and I get a lot of texts I'm on my phone often text and emails and social media don't really get that many phone calls only when it's scheduled clients phone's ringing I'm like a New Jersey number who is this so I'm like hello hi Amber it's the Dr. Oz show just reaching out when's your birthday and I thought, who's pranking me? Somebody's got their wife. Some <laughs> One of my guys at work has got their wife and they're totally pranking me. So I'm like, should I lie? Yeah. So I gave him my birthday and they hung up. Ugh. Okay. That was really weird. Didn't say anything to anyone. And I had work the next day and I thought, I'm not telling anyone because somebody's waiting for me to say something. So I just pretended nothing happened. Two days later, same kind of thing around the same time. It's like 630 at night. I was outside raking my leaves. And my phone's like vibrating in my pocket and I pick it up, New Jersey. Hi, Amber, this is Dr. Osho. I'm like, hello. Um, I just want to let you know that you've been selected as one of the final contestants for the trainer of the year. I know we couldn't talk the other night, but because it's a contest, it has to be follow so many rules and regulations. Are you willing to come to New York City next Monday, like in five days? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my God, do I work? Do I have something? It was super fast. Without even looking at my schedule, anything, I'm like, yes. Okay, great. Well, we'll send you all your flight details and everything. This is the email address you have. Boom. Hang up. Walk in the house. Um, so something just happened. So here I am talking to my partner and we're going through it and this is happening. This is happening. I ended up getting to book a Lou Day vacation day. It was available. So I take it. Don't tell anyone. I'd say nothing. I think I told my parents and that's it head down to New York City and I'm like in awe. I'm in Dr. Oz's dressing rooms, which I'm in Oprah's room, literally Oprah's dressing room with all of her pictures on the wall. Oprah Network owns Dr. Oz show, right? But that's her dressing room and I'm sitting there and I have all my workout stuff. Everything I would bring to the race course for racing, I literally brought to my Dr. Oz show. So here I am and I get a knock on the door and it's like the producer. She's fairly young actually. And she's like, hey, nice to meet you. Hair and makeup's here. Uh, have you in like six minutes here. You're on stage here. Do, 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 do. And everything is like in order. Whoa, what's your outfit? We have to press it. We have to make sure the colors. So I give her everything and I'm like, does this work? And she's like, yep, absolutely. 
So I go, how much time do I have before the show? So my hair and makeup's done. Everything's done. We've done our rehearsal. I kind of have a script of what they're going to ask us, which turns out that nothing on the script they asked us. She says, do you need any time? And I said, yeah, I need to know how much time I have to work out. She's like, what do you mean you're going to work out? And I'm like, is it okay if I run up and down these hallways? I need to do a workout because <laughs> yeah. I'm nervous. I've never been on showbiz like this. Everything that I know in my comfort zone is me to move and go back to a workout. She goes, yeah, absolutely. So I have bands. I have a roller. I have water bottles all in my room. I literally do a body weight, 45 minute hard workout. They redo my makeup and hair because I'm sweaty. I feel good. I'm ready to go. I'm in my zone. And I walk out there and we do our thing. And it was just really fun. Didn't know the results or anything. And then at that point, they announced it as a contest and multiple voting can happen. And so at this point, I'm like, Ooh, I'm a Canadian. I'm the only Canadian in this contest. Like, I don't think that this is to my advantage. By the time I was done taping the show and back to the fire hall, hair and makeup literally done. I flew home that night and at work the next day. So the guys kind of had an idea as to what's going on because I'll dress up sometimes and come in with straight hair and all of that stuff, but not to this extent. And TV makeup is thick. I had washed it off like three or four times, but it's still there. So they're going like, what's going on? Like, why do you look so what? This is not you, right? <laughs> all I said is, oh, um, I did a taping for a TV show. What? Wait, no. Um, yeah, I can't tell anything. I'm sworn to secrecy. You'll see it in the next couple of hours. So then at that point, I'm like, what can I post? What can I not post? So I reached out to our town and our fire chief and I tried to hit everyone I could and said like, what can I post? So I told our fire chief and he was great. And he was like, yep, you can use everything Central York. Um, I'm like, can I do it on shift? Like, am I allowed to do this? And he says, yes, absolutely. It's for the department. This is really good, right? And then media started showing up to the fire hall. They knew before I even told my family. I swear, I'm like, how do they know this? Started doing tapings, magazines started showing up. It was overwhelming. But I had posted that it was a contest and I needed people to vote. I can honestly say it was a humbling experience to go through and thinking that maybe you have an impact, maybe you don't. People that like you, people that don't. You're associated with all these people throughout your entire life, through every athletic sporting thing you've done through any committee or courses or school, to the fire service, to racing, to everyone that you have been a part of in your life, reaching out to you saying, I'm sitting here voting for you a million times. And I was so touched and was so emotional. The hard ass Amber, the jelly bean was mushy. So grateful. Win or lose, this has been an amazing experience. People are reposting things for me on social media. I had some business people that I had worked with that are really connected, posting. I show up to Worlds a year later and people are like, you have no idea. We were like voting for time at the fire hall. It was so great. So then ended up winning Dr. Oz and was on the show again, sharing my message for health and wellness and being the best version of yourself in that moment on that day. And what has changed since you won? Not much has changed since I won. I think that there's more to what I've been doing that I need to step up and play bigger and play bold. I think that I need to find myself to be more secure in my message and go with it and not be afraid. If I'm telling my old version of myself to surround themselves and support themselves and step up and be who they are, then why aren't I telling myself right now? I've gotten those steps so far, 
but what is my 50-year-old self going to tell my 34-year-old self? And I think we get to a point in our lives, you overcome so many hurdles, have so much success in your life, but then with success comes how much negativity. I'm sure you went through it as a training officer and chiefs out there and people that are making change within their departments or their families or their businesses. Those people, you take a lot of crap. I was always taught while racing, it's lonely at the top. And it is lonely at the top. I'm not going to lie. It's really lonely at the top. And it's really lonely at the top when you don't have a team with you. But yet you get an opportunity to be on Dr. Oz and you realize that actually your team is way bigger than you ever anticipated because the team that you thought wasn't behind you was actually there the whole time. And maybe they're just waiting for you to take that next step and make a change. That change isn't always popular and that change isn't always easy, but you have a purpose. You're here for a reason. If you're not going to do it, who is? If you can make a change as a training officer in your department that really doesn't affect me or my department, but yeah, we have a conversation like this, it really is making a change. Definitely makes me think about if you feel alone in your department, we're really lucky to have all these different mediums now to reach out to each other. Yeah. And I've spoken to a number of firefighters, email, text, to have those conversations. So that brings us to talking about brotherhood and family of the fire service yeah so why don't we end off on sort of your take on that where you sit with the state of brotherhood and family in the fire service and what can we do to maintain it to improve it does it exist in practice or is it just words this might get really in depth that's why we're here okay we say about making impact and we say about what's happening in your department might not affect my department or maybe it does or vice versa I can tell you that a podcast like this, I've already passed it on to a handful of people who have passed it on to a handful of people who are like, hey, Brampton's doing it this way. Mississauga's doing it that way. Why aren't we taking some of their positives and implementing it in our department? We don't have a big department, but we're behind in this area, but we're ahead in this area. Maybe our health and wellness is ahead that we can share with another department as to what we're doing that has an impact from a health standpoint, which is only going to increase firefighters' longevity and healthy retirements and family lives and all of that. So brotherhood and does it exist? I think that there's many moments that you question, is it there? Sometimes you feel like it's not there. Sometimes you feel like, oh my God, it's so strong. And why is it so strong right now, right? I think after 9-11 and terrible things in the world... I think everybody pulls together. And when we think of society or we think of family, I think that the closer you are, the harder it is because you butt heads and you challenge and that's life. In the end, I can share that our department just went through something horrific and challenging. One of my crewmates ended up passing away and lost the battle of mental health, PTSD and it always will be terrible. But at the time, you feel lonely. You feel like it's just your crews, your department. And then it goes out and you go to the funeral and you are surrounded with so many people from so many facets of your life because they've also went through it, unfortunately. And in those moments, brotherhood's really strong. Brotherhood, sisterhood, family is really strong. So... My department from my experience was amazing in terms of my crew. We have two crews at our hall and 
it was tough. It was tough on all our families, personal families. It's tough on our fire family. And we just kept hugging each other and loving each other and saying, I love you, because that's not always easy to say from a family standpoint and people you work with. But what we determined was that we were thankful that we went through it with each other because we're with each other all the time. And we butt heads at times and we push each other and push each other's buttons. But in moments like that, the truth comes out and empathy and love and support is there. What my personal crew couldn't provide me because they were hurting as well. And we have a peer support team. What they couldn't provide us because we didn't want to open up to them was our experience because we didn't want to hurt our own family members because they're hurting too because they're associated with it. We had other departments step up and other services step up and counselors come in and we were asking for it and we were not afraid to show true colors and say it's okay to feel like this and it wasn't about just getting a pat on the back or punching the shoulder say you're okay man and move on the stigma was gone and it was something that I have never experienced to this level I didn't want to experience it by any means but it happened I had more support and more phone calls and more texts on my phone from people I had never even met literally never even met never talked to and they just saw it on your social media or saw it or knew somebody through somebody through somebody. And all of a sudden, these people started calling you that were on their peer support team from a different department. I think I talked to a handful of Brampton peer support people, which were amazing because they could just bring me through with having no really emotional connection. But an understanding. A complete understanding and things that I probably needed to hear that I wasn't hearing from my immediate circle. They were saying to me, and, you know, it wasn't your fault. And you did everything you guys could. And as a crew, we were really proud of what we did because we put ourselves out there and we have no regrets. Everything that was going to happen was going to happen. But it's hard to hear that. And his family recognized it too. Have came and talked to us and are really thankful. And I was just at their family house prior to coming here. And asked what I could and couldn't say and the family wants everyone to know because if we can help one person, one other person and feel supported and maybe that just starts with the conversation and talking to your rookie after my first VSA, maybe that was my turning point. I don't know. Maybe it's my 29th year on the job and something triggers me. But if we know that we can openly talk about things and openly on a podcast. I mean, how many people are going to judge or not judge? But to lift that stigma and talk about it and share our story from our department and my story, I'm obviously speaking, but it's really coming from, from my department and my crews and to help somebody else out, whether you're emergency service or you're not, it's okay and there's support out there. And I only think it's going to get stronger, brotherhood and sisterhood and family and the fire service. Yeah, there's that adage that extended family only sees each other at weddings and funerals. And our extended family only ever sees each other at funerals. Yes. And so maybe what we need to hold us together and push us forward is to have that brotherhood feeling, that family feeling more often in better times. Yeah, for sure. And raise each other up and celebrate successes, promotional things. You see somebody get 
a yellow helmet or yellow helmet. You guys are weird department. <laughs> Red helmet or yeah. a white helmet. Instead of, you know, maybe in the past of being jealous of that person, if that's fair to say. or fair, yeah. yeah. Or holding a grudge against them or making a comment that, you know, they only got there for X, Y, and Z or whatever that may be. Take a step back and think about how much hard work and dedication and commitment went into that. It's not a fluke that these things happen. It's not a fluke that somebody accomplishes something big because you're going to be there one day. Or not if you don't do the work. If you think it's so easy, then you do it. Absolutely. And I like to think positive because I, I think that everyone has potential to get to their next step. And it is easy to be negative when you're surrounded by negative. Jim Rohn's quote about you're most like the closest five people you hang around. I often talk about it at the fire hall because sometimes we get negative and it's like, okay, let's change the vibe. And our crew is really fun. And it's dance party time. We have a dance party. We actually <laughs> turn on music and have a dance party and make that person that negative Right? We can all get negative, but it's got to be negative criticism that's going to try to make change, not sure. just sitting there and being negative. Constructive criticism. Constructive criticism. Yeah. So to change that vibe and to get up and move and to change your state and change your choices and make a decision. And if your decision is wrong, well, that's okay because you're going to learn from it. And it's a lot easier to be in the peanut gallery than it is that person to be trying to make the change. It is. Yeah. So make your brotherhood and sisterhood and family stronger by staying positive and leaving the fire service a better place than when you started. That's a good place to end on. Perfect. Thank you very much. Nice work. Thanks. It was great having you. Thank you. This is awesome. I was uh, nervous, a little jittery at the start, but I can't wait to hear other people on this podcast as well and learn from them. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Thanks. <laughs>